Recording from Starfish Mission in lovely San Francisco, California. We are catalyzing coherence, signal amidst an increasingly noisy world. I'm Matthew Perkowski. And I'm Brian Hofstein. We'll be your conceptual Sherpas as together we traverse the frontiers of human thought. And explore the deep patterns that connect us all. Hello and welcome to Catalyzing Coherence. We're here with Andres Gomez Emelson, the founder of the Qualia Research Institute. Welcome to the podcast, Andres. Thank you so much for having me. We are really excited to hear what you have to say. Uh, you're, you're doing a lot of really wonderful research at the intersection of, of consciousness and psychedelics, and and doing so much that is is really great. You know, is really breaking new ground. Yeah, you uh, is. Matthew and I sort of scour the world of thought and think about what are the most interesting ideas, cutting edge work. Um, we def- definitely feel like what you're working on is truly pioneering stuff. Um, and yeah, excited to dive into it more with you today. Awesome. So I think for our audience, you know, the name of your research institute is the Qualia Research Institute. And uh, you know, we are familiar with this term Qualia, but for anyone out there who's not familiar with this word that sounds a little strange, um, maybe we should unpack what that means and why, it, why it's important to understand and, and actually research. Yeah, for sure. Um, so uh, qualia, qualia um, I still don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> but, um, I mean, it's, I think it's like a really cool word because it's uh, actually pointing at something ex- extremely important and that I think a lot of people have kind of conceptions for it, but that they haven't been able to put it into words. So the, the example I usually point at is uh, maybe when you were a kid, you wondered, um, is the blue that I see the same blue that other people see? And I mean, most people find find it hard to actually verbalize that, that kind of questions or, or talk about Is that it. the type of thing that you wondered a lot about as a kid? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> right there with you. Yeah, yeah. It's a, I mean, I think, I think that um, because it's like a... A lot of people don't get that question. Uh, I remember like asking like uh, friends in elementary school, and just like some people would get it, some people wouldn't. Um, and uh, and and also like why it would be actually so hard to find out whether like maybe the the blue that you see is is what I see when I what I call red. Um, and because um, we kind of all, most of what we most of our social interactions and a lot of the systems we build, in a way, kind of assume that they assume that the internal experience that we all share is the same experience without really being able to prove it or, or knowing that we kind of make this assumption or make this leap. De- definitely. Uh, we, we tend to, I mean, it's a, it's a matter of kind of computational efficiency, just like how you simulate other people. There's like, there's a huge overhead in like, Oh yeah, th- that person experiences like smells differently or that person experiences thoughts differently, or th- this is a visual thinker and, and whatnot. But I mean, chances are we experience the world very different from, from one another. Um, I mean, a classic example for sure is, for example, just taste receptors. Like we know that about like 15% of people experience cilantro as something that tastes like soap and they just don't like it. I mean, it tends to be a very unpleasant experience for them. And, and it's, great. Like... it's great in guacamole. <laughs> <laughs> or... unless, it, unless it makes it taste like soap, I presume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly where you fall on the spectrum. Yes. And uh, I mean, in philosophy of mind, people tend to kind of like focus on qualia in kind of like the senses i mean they say like oh yeah like you know like smells and colors my uh conception of qualia is much more expansive so i also incorporate things such as what thought feels like to you which actually may be very different than to other people 
and also very subtle things like uh, even just like how you perceive like uh, different intervals of time um, or like very subtle emotions. I mean, all of those, I, I say like there are different uh, varieties of qualia. So that'd be something like you know, time dilation, right? I think I read something once about an experiment that they did where they had a, uh, they basically put a kind of like a VR headset over people and had a flashing display that was flashing slightly too fast to be perceptible mm-hmm. um, when they were just, you know, when the person who was being tested was standing there. And then they put them on top of like a 30 foot, a 30 foot overhang over this net. And then they basically would actually jump off. And when they jumped off, like doing a bungee jump or like, you know, the first 10 yards or something like you were jumping out of an airplane, the previously uh, illegible numbers that were flashing too fast for you to read become visible. So is that kind of what you're getting at? Where like there's these different parts of our environmental um, experience that can change what we actually consciously perceive? Yes, uh, and th- there's a tremendous number of variables. But uh, yeah, usually they, they're constant. <laughs> you don't notice them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, other other states. Of- Not quite as dramatic as getting pushed off or jumping off like a, a large overhang. Right, definitely. And I mean, even even that, I would say, is like a, a walk in the park relative to like major psychedelics, like mm-hmm. how, how much they can actually change the way you, I mean, the, the qualia that you actually have access to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe we should jump into that just really quickly in terms of, you, know, you mentioned psychedelics. <laughs> uh, this is in the zeitgeist. We're here in San Francisco. Uh, Michael Pollan came through, I think, on... Uh, last few nights on monday or tuesday paul stamets the mushroom king is here tonight (laughs) we are podcasting out of starfish mission and in the room next to us there's the san francisco psychedelic society meetup we did not know was going to be here right and we are talking to a consciousness researcher who also is interested in the way that psychedelics can be used to more deeply understand consciousness so something's in the air (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Um, they, they figure out how to pulverize LSD. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think, I think it's, um, it's a great time to, to be alive and like, study consciousness. And yeah. just like the, the, the picture I have is like, we are at the edge of a precipice and like, we, we have no idea how deep it goes and like, we're just <laughs> jumping into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, like, opening up of psychedelics for scientific research is obviously uh, extreme, extremely important and that's definitely going to change a lot how we see consciousness. And I, de- definitely in my work, understanding psychedelics is one of the, the biggest priorities just because they, they expand the state space available to humans. Has any of MAPS research been of particular interest to you? I mean, obviously they're, they're sort of doing the whole gamut in terms of like what they're studying. You said um, MAPS? MAPS, so the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Science. Um, Rick Doblin's uh, enterprise that he began to help bring back this type of research into um, vogue, into an acceptable form of what you could actually inquire about. Um, is there anything of particular interest that you found in those studies? Uh, I mean, th- yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it's, it's really great to uh, formalize uh, all of these studies. The, I mean, it, truth, truth be told, uh, the current kind of like wave of research is definitely focused on clinical applications. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like psilocybin for uh, end-of-life anxiety and uh, MDMA for PTSD, um, which, I mean, it, it, it makes sense in terms of, like, gathering like public support uh, as well as uh, just, like, governmental, like, being able to get governmental gr- yeah. grants and so on. And I guess we start, we start with kind of some of the most conservative applications given the fact that we might still have some residual hesitancies <laughs> given how they were treated in, like, the 60s and so. 
Definitely. With respect yes. to conscious research or mind control or you know, panpsychic research with LSD and things of that nature. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, I mean, I think I think it's a uh, really great. I mean, mo- most of the findings were like already known in the '60s because like, mm-hmm. uh, scientific protocols were. In They've the been known for centuries. Read the Tibetan Book of the Dead, <laughs> or all the you know. This is like there's an ancient tradition. These are ancient um, experiences that have always been a part of society. Whether hmm. it's Elysium in ancient Greece and whatever parties they were having, but you, you you study these things and you see that they've always been an essential aspect of a thriving culture, you might say. Um, and so, I personally am, am very excited about what Maps is doing because they're legit legitimizing these experiences as something substantial and something that you shouldn't be we shouldn't be turning an eye at or ev- or even discouraging we should in fact be responsibly encouraging the use of these substances in a way that is done under sort of the the ways in which they should be done you know set and setting there's there's a lot of people find themselves in ceremonies doing these things i know a lot of people that have actually traveled to peru to 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 do these substances with shamans and um yeah it is it's it definitely in san francisco right now there is um, a growing interest in the potential of these substances as, as, as medicines, truly. So just one thing to maybe tie a couple of threads that we've opened up here together. So, uh, Brian, you were just talking a little bit about this, this knowledge that might be a latent knowledge that we've had before or different types of experiential domains that perhaps are somewhat lost to our Western, more modern culture, um, or, or perhaps at, at least not quite as uh, thoroughly embraced given our culture. And earlier, Andres, you had mentioned this idea of expanding the state space of exploration. So I think that is quite relevant to the way that our, our culture perhaps constrains this idea of state space. But maybe we should talk a little bit more about what state space is for our audience yeah. because it's a little bit, it's an abstract concept, but it's a very important concept that we should probably unpack. Right. Um... Yes, I think I think like the maybe the the best way to unpack this is to kind of like talk a little bit about um, like the the what, what it's called usually direct realism uh, about perception. Direct realism. Yeah, direct realism. Um, I mean, philosophers also call it like naive realism, uh, but I, I prefer like direct realism uh, because I think like you can definitely make a a strong case for it. Although I think it's uh, ultimately doesn't work out. But basically, what direct realism about perception says is that. The reason why, let's say, when you open your eyes and you see uh, a red chair is because the red chair is there. You're actually having some direct access to this like, external world of yours. Mm-hmm. You're directly apprehending the real world. Exactly. Um, and uh, I mean, I think like that's kind of the, the standard um, in- intuition that people have. It usually takes people to kind of like consider philosophy more seriously and, and try to find a more consistent worldview. To actually arrive at a at a more subtle view, which is uh, indirect realism, which is well, actually, all you really have access to is the the qualia of your experience, and then you can uh, infer the existence of an external world, but it's always just an, an inference. It's an uh, indirect acquaintance with it. And I mean, of course, like you have like dreams, which okay, you don't need actual sensory input for you to uh, inhabit a very believable world simulation that your brain is is constructing. And um, just because you're awake, it doesn't mean you you have like a you know like more direct access to mm-hmm. actually how the world is. And my 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 feeling is that I mean maybe like ninety percent of uh, people who who use psychedelics um, 
start out with a direct realist perspective? In which I mean, case? it's kind of that that might be the kind of um, folk philosophy of experience in a way, right? Definitely, you know, it, it, it's it's quite natural to believe that what we are experiencing is a direct apprehension, given that the mechanisms by which we are entrapped by our own perceptions are very subtle, and one has to think pretty. Um, one has to think for quite a while about the intricacies of, of consciousness or know something about the brain and the way that consciousness or that experience is, is, is separated from the external world by these sense organs mm -hmm. and that what we're really watching is a movie created by the data of our sense organs. I mean, I still remember the first time I went down this rabbit hole <laughs> and I was trying to, you know, I was trying to unpack the implications of, I think it was with respect to just thinking about um, like time and light and the fact that we're always living in the past of the things that we think we're seeing now. Right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so like, maybe that's an interesting way. Cause there's always a time gap at the very least. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think what you're saying is that there's even more of a gap than just that time gap. Definitely. Um, and, uh, and how you interpret something like a psychedelic experience um, really changes depending on how much you've internalized these, these views, because like in the direct realist perspective, I mean, oftentimes you get, I mean, even people like Albert Hoffman, they, they may say things such as, well, LSD tunes your senses to another um, the physical dimension. Like it, it basically allows you to see a different kind of wave, uh, light, like wavelengths of light, or uh, it, it allows you to perceive like, I mean, a lot of like animists is like, oh, it allows you to perceive the spirit of rocks and the spirit of uh, plants and, and whatnot. And I mean, th there's like a way in which that could be true. Um, but if, if, even within indirect realism, but by default, basically, um, it's not the case that um, if you take like a large dose of DMT, you're going to a different dimension. Rather, at least within an indirect realist point of view, you're just changing your state of consciousness yeah. in such and a way. Changing that, the doors of perception, as Aldous Huxley might put it. It uh, well, I, I wonder whether one might be smuggling. Direct realism by sure. saying doors of perception. So I think I, Wait, I, can you can you expand on that? Right. I mean the the sense of there's like this wider reality um, yeah. that usually we're shut down to. Yeah. Um, and that is like you know it's like happening there. Like it's it's like an active yeah. uh, world that maybe contains other dimensions. Yeah. The idea of like opening the doors of perception kind of suggests is that you're apprehending the world even more directly, or you're apprehending a different part of the world more directly. Mm -hmm. um, which I think we could arrive at, but it would require a lot of justification. Um, by default, I would say um, maybe you're actually losing uh, totally re representation from the exact. What do they call it? The um, part of your brain, the executive functioning of mm -hmm. your mind. You lose that. You lose ego. You lose all these aspects that are typically clouding your vision, mm. right? And if by by releasing aspects of that, it opens up new aspects to embrace more sense perception sense awareness yeah so maybe let's i wasn't necessarily going to go into the deep end on this <laughs> this quickly but now that we're talking about it we're right on this topic here yeah um to expand on what you're talking about brian uh, or at least maybe to just add this evolutionary perspective of, of what i've thought about quite a bit in terms of how the evolutionary process um, shapes the not only the the organs that we use to perceive the external world, like our eyeballs or our ears, um, in terms of seeing light or hearing sound. Um, but this more macro perspective in terms of, in theory, there's a, a massive or an immense amount of complexity in which we're always immersed. 
And to some extent, our ability to effectively navigate that complexity at higher levels of efficacy depends upon not perceiving mm -hmm. a huge degree of what is available, right? So for example, a mantis shrimp has many more types of receptors for photons, and therefore they can see you know, trillions or more of colors that we would just have no, you know, no qualia mapping to those colors, right? Mm -hmm. So tell me what you think about this. In theory, evolution creates more and more layers that filter more and more information out or focus information in more highly attuned ways. And so therefore, like when we are kind of on our stable, um, I like to think of it as like we're walking on a tightrope. And we have this giant evolutionary gyroscope that keeps us on the tightrope. We don't even have to think about it, right? And so we don't even know we're on a tightrope. But we take psychedelics, and then that gyroscope starts to wobble. And some of those layers that evolution has helped us, uh, you know, has put there for us that we never even have to think about perceptually, they get blown away. And we're subject to perhaps um, modes of perception or data that are no longer... Um, as finely tuned or filtered by all those additional evolutionary layers. Now, maybe that's still subject to what you were talking about in terms of sneaking in direct realism, but I'm, I'm not sure. What do you have to like? What, what do you think about that? Right. So the thing is, like, it, it goes a little bit both ways. Psychedelics are, are complicated for for that reason. Like, there's definitely something to be said about removing filters. Um, one of the main mechanisms of action of psychedelics is that they basically prevent inhibitory signals from the cortex. Uh, reaching the thalamus, which means that basically a lot of uh, the experience, a lot of the sensor input that usually gets inhibited because they're not relevant to the task at hand, uh, simply isn't inhibited on on a psychedelic. So like you're more aware of like other parts of your visual field that usually you you just like not pointed to or like uh, you completely dismiss. Um, so I mean, in, in that sense, um, you're kind of like more acquainted with uh, kind of like direct sensor input. But I think like that effect is somewhat marginal and it depends on, on the dose. Like if, if you take a higher dose, actually, I think uh, a lot of like very crazy non-linear um, non phenomena start to arise where you actually stop at some point um, being in touch with the sensor input. I mean, you take a high enough dose of DMT and the visual field gets completely replaced mm -hmm. by something that's um, the information content of the visual field is just completely within your brain. Mm -hmm. And there's like nothing outside that correlates with it. Mm -hmm. uh, like the sensory input is actually not. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. where, whereas... we're kind of a loop as well, where we have all of this information bubbling up inside of us <laughs> that's always interacting with all of the information that's in the outside world as well, right? right. That's like that. That's the kind of the phenomenological insight where it's not that we are just um, kind of like a perceptual whole taking in information, but we actually always are bringing ourselves to the table of perception. Right. Yes, and uh, I mean, if you take a small dose, I mean, uh, in one of the articles I, I characterize kind of like a, if you take four milligrams of DMT, mm -hmm. you actually have like a more quote-unquote direct perception of uh, visual input mm -hmm. because it really breaks down your ability to prioritize um, input in, in an evolutionarily adaptive way. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's like, oh, like all of the textures. When you say prioritize, do you mean like if you're actually trying to like do a task or prioritize in terms of prioritize perception itself or what do you mean? Yeah, I mean prioritize for um, basically obtaining the kind of rewards that we are wired to. So, okay. right, I mean like... Uh, so like food, 
sex, sleep, those types yeah. of things that we would normally think are like very deeply wired into our behavioral patterns. Yes. You know, we, we no longer prioritize those as our, no. our as our MO. They, so they, they don't, they stop being the most salient aspects uh, of your experience. And instead it's like, oh yeah, the texturing the wall. Um, yeah. But, but again, like that's, I spent like an hour looking at the carpet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a, that's a very dose dependent. Like you, okay. you, you bump the dose and then like the non-linearities of your, um, I mean, the thalamocortical loops take over and then like you actually get disconnected from the visual input. So mm-hmm. there's a threshold in which it actually, you could argue it, it removes the standard filters. The thalamocortical loop that you just mentioned, you're yeah. saying when that is strong enough and when that takes over, yeah. that's the point at which your internal experience replaces any of the external signals. Yeah. Or in your opinion, or, or like, is that... That might be a, a, an approximate, way. yeah, approximate way, okay. way of summarizing it. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so it's like when that loop gets tight enough or strong enough, like it might be slightly more open to other inputs. So it's it's more, kind of, okay, le, 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 the full picture would be something like the cortex is very finely tuned to basically inhibit everything that is not relevant for our standard reward functions. So it's like, oh, like, yeah, like food, sex, like status, just like the standard stuff that uh, we were concerned with. Um, maybe you add a little bit of DMT uh, or pretty much any psychedelic. Um, and then like the, the inhibition system doesn't work as well. And then like, okay, yeah, then it's actually just, you're experiencing more the quote unquote raw sensor input. You increase the dose and then what starts to happen is like standing waves, uh, basically the cymatics of the system, which uh, we, we can get it more uh, deeper into in a little bit. Yeah. But, uh, we might need visual aids for that. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, but yeah, you get like these like crazy standing waves that overwrite the both cortical and thalamic information. And what you get is like that crazy standing wave, which is uncorrelated with yeah. the external input. Do you think that has something to do with like emergence? Like, are those like, like is that something where like that standing wave is like uh, something happens and then you enter a new resonance in the mind? Source, like an emergent state that one, doesn't normally exist. That's right. One one high level kind of like summary of, of it is like um, you're activating the natural resonant modes of the brain, um, mm. which usually are like very subdued and mm. finely tuned. Mm-hmm. But it, but yeah, sufficient dose of DMT or whatever is just like yeah, it's like full force the harmonics, <laughs> the harmonics of the brain. So outside of the experience yeah. itself, yeah, yeah, and of course there's that's that's separate other conversations we're going deep into this rabbit hole right now but you you say something in your article um on quantifying bliss that most who study this closely become mystics (laughs) Um, i think you're talking about more even to the research element Mm. but clearly there's something to the mystical experience that these substances help to produce that is in fact part of the worldview that matthew and i are trying to help articulate catalyzing coherence um and so yeah i mean can, can you speak to that in terms of seeing i mean we ultimately i think one of the terms we want to talk about later is is this idea of the harmonic society yes and so in working towards that <laughs> um that you know that that mystical oneness that we can say you know as above so below as within so without type of perspectives mm-hmm. um as we build towards that view and to just try to understand that better and what it means um how does this? How does the mystical experience inform your worldview? <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> actually quite quite a lot. I mean, I'm I'm uh, I'm not a uh, I'm not opposed to mysticism. I think there's a lot of truth in mysticism. I think there's a, also a lot of 
um, direct realism that can be smuggled into it. But uh, in, in general, there's some, some core ideas that I think are, are really great. Um, I tend to have a kind of like rigorous philosophical approach. So like whenever, you know, like um, rather than talking in poetry, I formalize it, mm -hmm. which has like advantages and disadvantages. But I, I find it's like easier to talk about it that way and ma make progress and build on top of it. So I think for, for this conversation, it would be really important to basically lay out a, a little bit of vocabulary. Yeah, we're all about building grammars here. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, so this is on the question of like, who are we, right? Which I mean, like psychedelics make you think a lot about like. When you say who are we, do you mean like who are we as individuals? Like who am I, or like who are we as humanity, <laughs> We're both. or both? <laughs> when you say that, what do you mean exactly? Who well, th that's right. I think I think all of them are relevant. The 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 one that I'm thinking the most about is like this very strange feeling of like realizing that you don't know who you are. Um, and that you you can probe the question, who am I? And like your brain will come up with a different answer every time you, you ask mm -hmm. it. Until you come up with a framework yeah. that... But it still that. comes up with, up with answers, which is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> if you ask it enough times, it, it may blank out at some point. And yeah. that, that itself is an interesting experience. Do you, do you disappear at that point? <laughs> <laughs> to some extent. So, um, so there's like three, three big views of, of like... Who, who everybody is um, and I'll, I'll just like lay them out so uh, this is in the context of uh, philosophy of personal identity um, doesn't sound as exciting as it actually is it's actually a super interesting field um, that sounds extremely interesting <laughs> and quite relevant to yeah. the world that is currently uh, you know enthralled with the idea of identity yeah. sure sure so the, there's like the common sense view it's like you start existing when you're born and you stop existing when you die but you're like a person basically. Mm -hmm. It's just like one individual. Yeah. There's like um, addendums to that one. You can say like, the, I don't know, the Christian view, like you start existing when you're born yeah, and you just never stop existing. And that would kind of be, in, in some way, that's kind of like the linear view, right? Like your line is a light or your, your light is a line that begins at one point and then ends at another point. Yeah. But not connected to some greater network or like your, your echo doesn't survive. C correct. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, or maybe you, you existed before you, like reincarnation type, type views. But, okay. but you're a, a separate parallel reality from everybody else. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the common sense view. This is one of the things that um, I think like our, our brains uh, make us believe because it's evolutionarily adapted. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are the carriers of our own genes, of yeah. course, like from a gene-centric point of view, mm -hmm. that, that view is very favorable. Yeah, like you're on the reproductive clock, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. So <laughs> got to punch in every morning. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so a somewhat unfortunate view, but yeah. sure. But but it's a, yeah. The, that's the most prevalent. Um, I think emotionally, most people uh, align with it, and and that view often on psychedelics feels insane. Mm -hmm. um, people say like, no, like wait, that doesn't quite make sense. Like that's yeah. weird. Like it can't be all there is. It can't be all there is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then then you have like two other views. Uh, less common, but I think uh, more defensible than the first one. So you have empty individualism that basically says you're just a time slice. Like basically you just exist for an infinitesimal moment of time. Um, and actually, I mean, you can kind of think of it as like, hey, don't identify with your body. It's more like your, your brain is creating the conditions for like moments of experience. Okay. And you're like just one of those moments of experience. Okay. And, and that's all, all you are. You're actually not connected 
to like who you will be in 10 minutes. You're not connected to who you were yesterday. So in that view, we're, we're dying an infinity of deaths <laughs> and in being born an infinity of times as we yes. perceive ourselves moving Karmic through Karmic reincarnation and hyperspeed. Yeah, and yes. I, like, yeah like exactly happening right. so fast <laughs> that we, we, we have this illusion of continuity. Well, one of my favorite yep. uh, polymaths, he invented second-order cybernetics. Hans von Feuster mm-hmm. wrote in a great little book called The Beginning of Heaven and Earth Has No Name. He says, at every moment, I can decide who I am. Yeah. Which is an interesting <laughs> way to think about this reincarnation <laughs> of sorts that you're describing. Yes, I, I, I love that description. Yeah, and uh, micro karma, like uh, <laughs> yeah. transmigration of the soul. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I, I mean, that's a typically a very Buddhist view. Um, I know Buddhists who say like, yeah, that's, that's what's real. Like, that's, that's real. Everything else is an illusion. You are who you are, like, just right now. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, which, uh, and, and a, a lot of physicists, too. Do you like, think that's um, also something like Sam Harris would subscribe to that? It seems kind probably, of along probably. those lines. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I know, yeah, Daniel Ingram, the, yeah. the writer of uh, Mastering the Court, mm-hmm. Teachings of the Buddha, he definitely would say, like, yeah, that's the truth. <laughs> mm-hmm. You shouldn't, like... Capital T truth. No, I, th- I think, yeah, he might say that's a capital T yeah. truth, but pragmatically, you shouldn't get obsessed about it yeah. mm-hmm. because okay. it doesn't help. But you. it does lend some credence to some of these meditation practices, you know, breathe in light or breathe in peace, breathe out love or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. um, that it's like, oh, there's something to this. Right. Or it might even be the case that having this idea of the capital T truth, mm-hmm. yet thinking that it should not necessarily be acted upon as the pragmatic truth is in and of itself a pragmatic truth. Like it is, it is potentially useful to have these ideas that are transcendent. Mm -hmm. Like this idea of capital G God or capital T truth, Mm -hmm. these kind of like, well, I, I kind of think of them as like infinitely approachable attractors. Like you can always move towards it perhaps, but you can never quite reach it. Sure. And so it might be this like North star type of guiding principle but you shouldn't necessarily think that you can actually attain it. Right. Yeah. Does yeah. that align with that? Is that it... That's super interesting. Like uh, basically using the belief in capital truth as a pragmatic means for yeah. Oh, yeah. consciousness. Yeah. I mean, I mean uh, Discordianism, I think, does does that a lot. Di- uh, I'm sorry, what? Dis- Discordianism? Discordianism. Th- there's like a philosophy uh, about basically systems of beliefs as tools. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think about... I've been thinking about that for years, quite frankly. I think my reading Nietzsche inspired it a lot because Mm. Nietzsche thought so much about the way beliefs actually construct our world. Yeah. So it's really, it's it's fascinating. I mean, there's also a uh, a neuroscientist out of the Harvard Medical School, Lisa Feldman Barrett. Um, She wrote a book, we, we were at lunch earlier, I was mentioning a little bit, you know, how emotions are made. And she has something that she calls effective realism, which is basically a belief-centric epistemology. I sometimes jest with folks, ontology recapitulates epistemology, (laughs) which basically means our belief about the nature of becoming actually informs how we know what is true. It, 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 It explains why someone might become brainwashed but it also explains to this, uh, this Discordianism type of view that you just described that I wasn't familiar with before. But this idea of the beliefs that we hold are truly like maps for the world. And 
we don't give that sometimes enough sensitivity in terms of like um, as we talk about breaking down boundaries and thinking. Yeah. Um, as we go, you know, Matthew and I, we often talk about um, the structure of scientific revolutions and going from one paradigm to another. So you can think of um, going from the world is flat to the, the world is round to the sun revolves around the earth to the earth revolves around the sun um, to the Newtonian clockwork universe to the Einsteinian space-time relativity to quantum physics and seeing all these different ways in which literally how we view and understand the world was updated mm -hmm. in a new way. And I think a lot of people for years have been thinking that consciousness research is in fact that next update. Um, there's a great book called The Quantum Enigma that is basically calling for this, that, that you know, the, the next wave of understanding in the frontiers of research it's, is going to be quantum conscious related in some in some form or another. Hmm. Mm -hmm. um, we at least have to start coming to grips with models that take build build upon the quantum, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> as opposed to just saying that that's mysterious. Like <laughs> there be dragons, right? Yeah, like yeah. in this in this probabilistic world of uncertainty. There's Christopher um, Koch, who's one of the foremost researchers. That he his view he he calls himself a panpsychic. Mm -hmm. Um, Panpsychist. Panpsychist. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. That's, I, so it is interesting in that sense. Um, the idea of ontology re recapitulates epistemology in the sense that we have these symbols that become part of our unconscious grammar that we take for granted, yet they also become the things that bind us to seeing the world in the way that we've always seen it, as opposed to... And then we defend it as well, right? Because we have this invisible set of inertia or like these invisible set of systems that underlie what we do every day. Like, and it's kind of like a habit, right? And habits become over time, habits become invis invisible mm -hmm. and they become unconscious, right? They literally move from this point of consciousness or this place of consciousness where you actually pay attention to something in your environment to a point in which it's, it's now an autopilot. And I think it's interesting because, you know, we're at this point now where we're actually trying to bring the symbols of consciousness itself and the symbols of the mind and the symbols of spirituality and like put them all back on the table and try to kind of put that puzzle back together in a way that might make more sense out of, out of these new paradigms that we've opened up. We've op opened up a Pandora's box, right? Of, of all these new worlds of scientific research and mm -hmm. spiritual consciousness and, and psychedelics. And it's a lot of information that we're kind of, we're left with and we don't have a lot of great frameworks that are helping us to provide coherence. Yeah, and I didn't finish the... the You're three. the third. You had yeah, the, third the third one to go. Yeah, sorry. We, no, 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 this we, is how we do we, it here. We, spiral, we, spiral, <laughs> we spiraled off, but we're going to bring it back. What is, what is the third mode? Okay, so, um, yeah, so the fir first, close individualism, common sense, then empty, you're just a time slice, the kind of Buddhist. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third one is uh, open individualism, which is there's just one consciousness. Mm. And we are, which is all, the kind of that panpsychism or pan panpsych. The panpsychism is is compatible with usually with empathy and with open. Yeah. Okay. Uh, because you like panpsychism, all it means is that everything uh, is made of consciousness, consciousness. qualius. How so? Then how does that differ from and from this open perspective? Be because you could you could have um, the view in panpsychism, which would be all there is is a collection of experiences. In the universe, like even an atom is just a tiny experience interacting with other experiences. Mm -hmm. But each experience is its own distinct subject. 
Whereas in open individualism, you would say, well, everything is uh, an ex like everything that exists is an experience. But in addition to that, there's only one subject of experience. Mm. What was the former one? What was the name of the former one? So there's empty. Yeah. Empty is kind of deflationary. It's like, yeah. oh, there's no self. There's just this moment for yeah. you. Mm -hmm. And open is like, kind of like you, you can imagine almost topologically. It's like there's no inside and outside. Yeah. And everything mm -hmm. is just I'm the same <laughs> one thing. <laughs> yeah. I think I think something. So I was, I was speaking. We're going to have the mathematician physicist Garrett Lisi on the podcast. Oh, cool. Awesome. And I was briefly speaking with him and some things that he said, I think, make me because he, he from his perspective, I think he was saying that, like, you know, at the uh, at the quantum level, and I'm, I may be wrong, and he can correct me when he comes on the podcast if that's true. But that you know, there is something like an experiential reality to the interactions between these these quantum probabilities. Mm -hmm. But that it's not necessarily connected to some deeper underlying experiential observer, so to speak. Hmm. And and is that where the line is between two and three between this? empty and open where it's like empty would be you know they can have this experience but they're each having their own and then open is like it's actually all one underlying experience yeah yeah that, that would be i mean when yes uh one intuition for open in physics is uh what's called the one electron uh, theory of the universe mm -hmm. which is that i mean in Feynman diagrams which is like a very concise way of describing quantum interactions mm -hmm. um sometimes you, you see this crazy thing of like you have an electron and an anti-electron, uh, positron, as they're, they're called, mm -hmm. coming together and they become uh, a photon, which is like mm -hmm. pure energy or light. Mm -hmm. uh, and it turns out that uh, mathematically an, an anti-electron is equivalent to an electron moving backwards in time. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And uh, like the math works out that way. That's beautiful. So like one, one way in which you can actually describe that interaction is you have like one electron yep. that bumped against uh, a photon mm -hmm. and that made it move backwards in time and now is receding. Yeah, and that's that, is that kind of like the bootstrapping into these ideas of retro-causality potentially? Mm -hmm. it, it could be, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, uh, and it's one way of constructing the whole universe out of just one particle. Mm -hmm. It would be just like one particle and its pattern of self-interference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, building on itself continuously. Yep. Which would be a, the, an open individualist point of view. It's like, oh, we're we're all that one particle, yeah. just in different moment or different regions of its yeah. own self. Yeah. So, I so like wanna... one like one stone. Like if you were able to like, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt <laughs> you, um, but just it'd be almost like if you threw a stone into a pond and it was skipping infinitely mm -hmm. around the pond, yeah. and then we're all perceiving ourselves as all the ripple patterns that keep getting generated in that <laughs> pond. Something like something that. like that. Yeah. Yeah, for the non-physicists out here, right? <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Sorry, Brian, you're saying? No, well, I think that open view is quite rich. It's and it, it's what, in my experience, people tend to go towards when they take a lot of psychedelics. <laughs> <laughs> what does it's that all mean? just one thing, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, and we're it, all connected. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a very defensible view. Um, yeah. I think people. I mean, I and I think it's likely. I mean, like I'm. My, my take is like closed individualism is almost certainly false and I'm undecided between empty and open. Like, oh, either I'm just a moment of experience where we are all one. Is that because it's difficult to draw a boundary uh, around the, the self or perception? Yes. Well, the closed individualism, like the common sense view, I think is self-contradictory. Like, I mean, I have like a writings on these, but basically 
it requires you to 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 point out at some, point out something about yourself and say like this is me. Mm-hmm. Could be like memory, could be causality, could be like personality, could be. And the 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 problem is that like whatever you say, like it's your true self. Mm-hmm. I can always come up with a counterexample. Like for example, let's say you say, "Oh, I am my mem- my memories." Mm-hmm. Okay, sure. Like what happens if you take something that creates a retrograde amnesia so that you forget the last day of your life mm-hmm. and then you wake up tomorrow okay so that actually that created some branching it's like there's some part of your life that you experience that, but that isn't you you don't remember but presumably it was your consciousness okay so like that shows that memory is not who you are now tell me for example your personality well you, i can change your personality uh with psychedelics or whatnot or you say like causality like oh i can like do mind melding with another person basically anything you can say this is my true self and what makes me different from others there's always wiggle room to to show that that's like not enough so to me like the idea that you are like an individual person that starts existing when it's born and stops existing when it's died like that's reputable i, th- I think it's possible to show that's just not the case mm-hmm. which leaves open and empty mm-hmm. and and i think it's hard to to say which of the those is true I, however i think we should act as if open is true. I mean, we, we should act as if we're all one consciousness. Because that also provides a very solid foundation for ethics. Mm-hmm. Like, why should I care about like a, you know, a poor, poor guy in, in Africa dying of malaria? Well, mm-hmm. they're, they're the same consciousness. Like, ultimately, that's mm-hmm. out of like an enlightened self-interest. You really should help everybody. Yeah. In the sense that like the, the patterns of suffering in, in the consciousness, wherever it might occur, either in the, on the planet or, or in the universe, if there's other uh, conscious beings out there experiencing suffering yes is all part of the same wave function of consciousness correct and therefore the more we can reduce suffering the more we can reduce that type of interference in the entire wave pattern that is also part of us yes yeah and uh yeah i mean you you could imagine also like an alien civilization coming to the conclusion of open individualism so like then when they they come why would they come to that conclusion let's they, they could come through philosophy Mm-hmm. And uh, in the same way that we are starting to come. Yeah, we're coming exactly. It could, it could be a convergent point. Mm-hmm. Um, so just to yeah, yeah. add to that, I mean, a lot of my interest, at least research wise or, or philosophically, comes from the East. Yeah. And I think a lot of the Eastern philosophies are definitely speaking to this open individualism. You're right. That's true. Hinduism, very much so. Like at the root, we're all Shiva. Yeah. Things. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and really, I mean, whatever lens you want to look at, if you really, if you study, if you think about the Big Bang cosmology, it's the same thing. They're just different ways of describing this oneness evolving into the many. Yeah, right. Well, I guess in some ways on the spiritual domain, I guess what differentiates that Eastern perspective from some from the Western perspective is, is directionality in some sense. Like it, what we're kind of talking about with, with respect to Hinduism or, or Buddhism is like this approach towards the oneness Whereas in, in Christianity, it's a, like almost a fallenness from the singularity, hmm. in a sense. The, the, there was this pre-cosmogonic chaos, mm-hmm. and from that was kind of, we, we were fragmented into um, order, or some degree of order, but also kind of belabored with the understanding, not only of ourselves, but of the inadequacy, perhaps, of ourselves in the face of the rest of, of the universe. Okay. The I, knowledge of the future. I have a thought for you guys. Okay. It builds on this. Okay. Okay. What if that's build? What what if that's just the process of the universe itself? What do you what? So this idea of so 
being with yourself, right? Let's say that's the bit, that's like the infinitely dense point through which all this universe came from. Mm-hmm. That's God knowing God's self. That's, sure. that's Brahman, as the Hindus would say. It unfolds, and we know we know that story of Big Bang cosmology and, and, and the, the, the epics and, and billions of years through which um, the universe cooled, and, and we've had you know the potential for matter and matter to use gravity to grind itself into stars, and stars to then grind itself into stars that had greater levels of chemical or molecular density in them which became new solar systems that had more advanced forms of combinatorial processes. And, you know, four and a half billion years ago, you get our beautiful solar system, our Goldilocks planet, and life begins. And it, this process that we know through this lens of Big Bang, big history, so to speak, is, I think, very similar to the metaphors that you can interpret from these ancient mystical tales of how these cultures from the East perceive the evolution of life itself as well. So it's just interesting. You know, Alan Watts said the, that he felt like the, the cosmic game was hide and seek. It was you know yourself, and then you go and you lose yourself again. Um, and it's interesting. We're talking about this reincarnation loop now. It's also like the hero's journey, right? The descent into the underworld, the chaos, and then the kind of reincarnation from there, or the, the ascendancy to a new order of mm-hmm. self mm-hmm. Uh, after dissolution. These cycles, they're, they're everywhere. Exactly. There's no beginning and no end. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I want to see if it's possible to attain sustainable perfect bliss forever <laughs> I mean, it, it would be good to know if it's possible yeah right? like, let's not do these like endless you... cycles like needlessly yeah that is an interesting um th- that's a that's an important thesis or important interest of yours which is it, it does it spans your research mm-hmm. which i actually might contend a little bit quite yeah. frankly that uh, i'm interested and i and first <laughs> off i love that you're studying it I love that you have the audacity to believe that it is possible because it's not going to be possible unless someone believes it first. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, come again, the Taoists would say there's yin and yang and it's this ever perpetual dance through, you know, change and order and, and, and being and becoming and, and all these different ways that life unfolds. Right. But what you're calling for is truly a, um, an omega point of sorts or a, or a transcendent, we've reached a new threshold of self-empowerment in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I, I must, just like for a full disclosure, I'm not, I'm not like super romantic about life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're talk, I, I, it's interesting. I would actually consider myself a romantic of life. Sure, sure, sure. Which, is, which makes this conversation so fascinating. I, yeah, please continue. Right, right. As long as we don't recur to uh, physical violence, I think. Oh, that, no, no. <laughs> don't worry. I'm somewhere in between, so I'll meet you. Yeah, it's... <laughs> I'll be your relationship counselor for the evening. <laughs> I have very good. reasonable rates. I mean, I think. Um, I mean, I think. I think. Right, like I'm. I'm of the intuition that like suffering, it's not like redeemable. Like I think like any amount of suffering is like a net negative. Um, is like a like. And, and a negative aspect of, of, you know, the universal wave function of, of quantum mechanics or like the whole set of energy in, in the entire uh, universe. 
um, the less suffering, the better. Uh, you also uh, seem to think that it is um, fully escapable. Yes. Um, which would put you on the other side of you know, the debate from someone like an existentialist or so, someone who argues that there's a, a certain pattern of conscious being that is small in the face of a immensely large universe and that that asymmetry between the conscious observer and the immense size scale and, and unpredictability uh, of the universe is this driver of, of suffering that may be ineradicable but you don't believe that no mm-hmm. sort of like a techno buddhist type of view yeah yeah so, so why and... is if you're going to make the strongest <laughs> case for why suffering is eradicable yes well how would you go about doing that well I mean, first of all, empirical observation, we know for a fact there's people who uh, you might define as hyperthemic, uh, people who seem to be genetically predisposed to be always happy. I mean, the, this is something uh, in the rate of like maybe one in every thousand people. Mm. Uh, and intuitively, I mean, people uh, say like, well, if I, I don't think I've ever met one of them. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah? The, you have to introduce me to somebody who's sure, always happy. Sure. That would be amazing. <laughs> I, I would love to see what that's like. <laughs> right. I mean, they, they may they may have like a bad day, but but yeah. like it's rare and like okay. they tend to be very happy and very motivated. And um, so just be like like a very cheery person, perhaps. I mean, maybe I don't know. They're always happy, but they're just like unusually cheery all the time. Yes. That it, might be a, like a symptom, so to speak. Exactly, I don't, that's they, the wrong terminology. But so, some people describe it as kind of like a control, uh, controlled, rational uh, mania. It's kind of like hmm. if like a bipolar uh, yeah. person goes from like minus 10 to 10 yeah, yeah. Um, and hyperthemic would be kind of like at the three all the time okay whereas like the normal human experience is maybe from like minus one to one or something mm. like that oh interesting so it's like okay yeah this is like greatly enhanced yeah uh, would you so say what, the normal individual is called hyperthemic? hyperthemic yeah 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 so you use a neg- the normal human individual has this range of experience uh, between negative one and one whereas the hyperthemic is at three yeah and the bipolar manic depressive is between negative 10 and 10. Yes. Oh. Um, so, yeah, that's a huge gap, right? Yes. And, and part <laughs> of me, part of me is skeptical of that. But I've also, my life has been severely Im- impacted by people who I've known who have suffered from uh, bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. And given the experiences I've seen in that respect, that's the part of me that, that makes me not so inclined to disagree or, or be as skeptical. But it, it, it's weird because it's, it is strange to think that perhaps we're limited to such a small realm of experience in our normal day-to-day life. Yeah, you don't even you you don't even have the slightest idea of how restri- restricted our range, yeah. range is. It's, hmm. uh, I mean, um, that goes back to the state space conversation earlier. Yeah, right. We're in this very like highly constrained space, or even like the metaphor that I was talking about being on the uh, being on the high wire with the gyroscope. Right, mm-hmm. the gyroscope. It's its job. To the evolutionary gyroscope, it's its job to constrain our experience. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we have lots of negative feedback mechanisms in both directions mm-hmm. to keep us in check, yeah. roughly at around like a zero or like yeah. a little bit above zero for, for most people, but um, tends to be pretty pretty mediocre, like a range in general. So you're not promoting necessarily the hyperthemic. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm more ambitious. I'm... Yeah, what, what are your ambitions? <laughs> Could you describe Yeah. <laughs> Crank us all up to ten. <laughs> uh, so, well, so an, a key a key aspect is um, uh, gradients of bliss. So, I don't gradients of bliss. I don't advocate for uniform bliss, like constant ten. Mm-hmm. I would be advocating for let's hang out in the let's say ten to twenty range. 
Um, so that we, I mean, basically. So beyond the, yeah. hang out in the place beyond the most positive states of the current uh, <laughs> person in the throes of mania. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Like Let's style, do it. <laughs> that should be like the, the minimum. <laughs> okay. And okay. Plus, plus, in the future, there's also going to be a thing like hedonic insurance. He's like, oh, like I'm going like I'm I'm at nine. Like, uh-huh. like that's bad. Like they yeah. they would like pay hedonic pay. insurance. Yeah, hedonic. And liability costs for the hedonic treadmill. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you have this beautiful term in your article, clinical phenomenologists, <laughs> of actually like clinically thinking about how do we manage our phenomenological experience. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I mean, I think it's um, in the future. Your valence, which is basically the, the pleasure pain axis, is going to be fully measurable mm-hmm. and ob- objectively uh, de- possible to determine. Yeah. Another term of yours I really like is this idea of valence landscapes. Right. Yeah. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, this is the, the gradients of bliss, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. So the, the problem with uniform happiness is you just wouldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. You, you still need like a, a valence landscapes, basically like some range so that you can have motivation. So you can say like, well, I'm I'm in a wonderful state, but I, like over there is like even better, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you keep actually like moving forward mm-hmm. that way. Um, and so there's a little bit of a different there's a distinction to be made there because yeah. the landscape is you know you kind of it's like your environment and you go different places on the landscape. Mm-hmm. Perhaps you go up a mountain and and your valence your your positivity you're happy up there, right? Yes. Um, but but perhaps there's another you know then you go to um, a beautiful lake from there and, and you get even happier, right? Sure. So it's like there's this landscape that you can go to many different places and be happy or perhaps you leave the lake and then, you know, a tiger bites you and, and you're very unhappy, right? right? But then there's still the idea of valence itself, which is not as much of a landscape as a line in your worldview, right? It's a, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to be like a one-dimensional axis of positive versus negative emotion, yeah. which is interesting from the perspective of, you know, we we at least we apprehend this very perhaps rich internal tapestry of, of states of being, and you seem to be arguing for, in some case uh, or in, so, in some respect, mapping that down to a single dimension of positive and negative value or valence. So yep. maybe, you know, why do you feel like that's the appropriate way or the, or the best way to look <laughs> at this? Right. I mean, like there, I think I think at the very least you have something uh, like. I might describe as a hedonic zero mm-hmm. is a baseline. Yeah, well, is is the region that divides um, experiences that people say they were happy to have versus mm. not happy to have for their mm. intrinsic sake. I mean, like a lot of people say, like, well, like I suffered, uh, I don't know, something bad happened, but I'm glad I had that experience because I learned or something. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about that. I'm I'm saying consider like a dream where you're like you're just not learning anything. Yeah, you're just like. Con- Take take away all the instrumental value of the experience. Just focus. I, mean, I think on, some people may disagree with you about not learning from dreams. Or, well, but for the sake of the uh, thought experiment, sure. Okay. Where like you don't learn. Something. Yes. Okay. So, okay. Okay. In, 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 incomprehensible dream. Uh, sure, but but that has like an emotional texture. Okay. Which uh, I think a lot of dreams are kind of like that. Uh, emotional texture. I like that concept. Yeah. 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 So I mean, like emotions have texture, like um, mm-hmm. and like. That, that matters for sure, but I think it's sensible to still compress it to one dimension for ethics. And the hedonic zero is basically the point at which if it's below hedonic zero, you say, uh, that experience sucked. I wish I had just been unconscious, unconscious instead. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, like 
uh, feeling a lot of pain yeah. you're not learning anything from. I mean, okay, if, you, like, if perhaps you have enough of those stack up, you actually may not want to experience any more experiences and, and then, you know, yeah. end one's life or something like that. Sure, Is you that, may not want to risk it. Uh, yeah. If you're approaching the end of your life and like you're experiencing like, I don't know, like four out of 10 pain all the time. Yeah. Like, okay, sure. Like maybe there's a point in which it's just not worth it to continue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I think that's like a sensible, rational, uh, ethical decision sometimes. And um, um, and yeah, so, and I think the hedonic zero, the, the thing is like it can manifest in many ways. Like you can have a hedonic zero that is a perfectly neutral state. And like you don't experience any emotion whatsoever. Just like flat. Mm-hmm. But you also have hedonic zeros where like you're experiencing an orgasm at the same time as like back pain. There's like, oh, there's like a really nice part of my experience and a very unpleasant part of my experience. And somehow they're kind of balancing out. Yeah. Such that if you increase the intensity of the orgasm, it's like, oh, actually, I do it like this experience as a whole. Mm-hmm. If you increase the intensity of the back pain, then you would say, well, no, actually, this experience sucks. So like you can come up with like any texture, like any quality of experience, like whether it's like on DMT or whether it's like, you know, falling in love or, or whatever, lo- love sickness. And like fiddle around with the positive and negative aspects of your experience and reach a hedonic zero where you say, yeah. if you add any more negativity, I'm, I, I want to bail out of it. If you add any positivity, yeah. this is good. So I think what you just said there, it might be a little interesting clue into that one dimension where it seems perhaps it maps to our um, either approach or withdrawal mm-hmm. uh, mapping in terms of our behavioral mapping. Right? Yes. It's like... Uh, approaching more of a situation or approaching a situation would mean that it's net positive in some way whatever the many factors of emotional texture you might be experiencing however they add up if you're approaching it it, it is like a net positive so to speak yes that, that's kind of am i am i reading you correctly yeah definitely okay and i think i think yeah hedonic zero that actually does manifest a lot in in that i mean you, you can estimate the hedonic zero for like fear and uh pleasure for like a rat for example yeah. it's like oh like uh over there like there's like too much fear because like you so how does addiction factor into this then right like because in theory that's a pathologized approach behavior that's right uh addiction is complicated too because it involves craving and uh craving i would say it's uh actually some kind of a um uh like it's a, an adverse like it basically when one is craving one is not so much trying to approach something as much as trying to reduce the unpleasant uh, unpleasantness of the urge. Mm-hmm. So that's why like a, an addict can like basically just do something that actually they don't even enjoy yeah. just to relieve the craving. It's like an unbearable tension between you and whatever the object of addiction is. Right. Like if you, the further you move away from it, the more painful that tension or the more, more, uh, the more of a force that tension exerts over your valence. Yes, exactly. Um, it's like yeah. getting stuck around a, a star of suffering. Yeah, it's like <laughs> orbit. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Actually, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so I think that's why I think I, I mean, from an ethical point of view, I think it makes sense to compress like your well-being into just one dimension. Mm-hmm. But of course, like when it comes to like the richness of life, um, you know, actually, like the texture of it matters quite a lot. I mean, it's not the same to feel peaceful and relaxed than feeling excited and like. Uh, in a state of anticipation and high energy. Mm-hmm. They, they both may be high valence. They both probably are very pleasant, but the texture of it is very different. Mm-hmm. I, I would still hold that if you run 
uh, the valence equation, it would they both would come out positive, and with this they could come out with the same score, uh, even though the texture is very different. But they still share something. They share an underlying mathematical property that makes them positive on the whole. I mean, and, and the same thing with, with negative experiences. Like all negative experiences, according to um, our theory, share a mathematical feature that makes them negative valence, uh, even though the texture would be very different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if we're striving towards, if, if there's this open consciousness. Yeah, open individualism. Or sorry, open individualism. And we're striving, or to some extent, there's, I, I guess you, we would kind of, Put these two pieces of the puzzle together and saying there's this open individualism and in that worldview in theory the maximal reduction of suffering is all of the separate pieces of that wave rippling separately and interfering beginning to cohere again into one underlying pattern or one underlying source again it's possible i mean it, it depends defragmentation of of the consciousness the unified consciousness i mean that. for right for economies of scale i suppose I do suppose like maximum bliss will be achieved when we turn all matter and energy in the universe into uh, ecstasy. Consciousness? Yeah. Okay. I mean, consciousness in a state of ecstasy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you think that has to happen simultaneously? What do you mean? Like if we create, if, if the universe becomes entirely saturated with consciousness, yeah. does it have to enter that state? No. In the state of bliss? No, no, no. For it to Ooh. be sustainable? Oh. Or no. if, if it enters it in some other state, can it then still, therefore, somehow make itself increasingly blissful? I think... Because, like, if it, if it... It seems <laughs> awfully lonely, I guess, is what I'm getting at. If it were yeah. to enter the state of, like, eternal, like, being... Yep. But there's, again, like, or I guess maybe it's just a human tendency to want to think that, but where's the other universe that I can, like, hang out with and, like, you know, talk to? And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wouldn't I mean, that, that be lonely? But I guess it's, yeah. it's we can't even apprehend what that would be like. That's, I mean, that's a, a can of worms, but I, <laughs> absolutely. So, I mean, in open individualism, I think my, my sense is that most people see the upside of mm -hmm. it. They don't see the, the negative side of it. Mm. Uh, and I think, um, I mean, among people who've like tried a lot of psychedelics, I think there are some states of consciousness people sometimes enter, which is feeling that there's just one consciousness mm -hmm. and feeling lonely. It's like okay, this sucks. Like I guess I guess that's why I like I divided myself into a billion pieces so that I could like actually have company or something like that. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, isn't that that's kind of like in the Hindu yeah. like, in like these yeah. this like phase model of spiritual universe in which there's this kind of fragmentation and suffering period and then like a, you know re a congregation of all the pieces into like a, the Brahman and then you know there's a period of rest and then a refragmentation infinitely moving yeah. through that cycle right we had universal theories of like you know the big bang and then potentially the universe contracting once again into that state and sure. recapitulating the pattern of you know big bang and then big crush <laughs> but that's obviously you know we've moved mostly past that period, right i think right, right. Um, i mean cosmological observations don't seem yeah, to i don't think anyone supports that yeah no one supports that any longer but but no yeah absolutely. although there still is a bet on the long now in terms of whether or not the universe will stop inflating i saw uh, that the other day have you seen the long bets page yeah it's great <laughs> yeah, one of the bets. Uh, I think it's actually the Danny, the guy who made the clock of the long now. I think Xander. He, oh, Danny. Danny, Hillis. Danny Hillis. Yeah, yeah. He has a bet with somebody on that in terms of whether the universe will actually stop it. That's a good bet. Um, yeah, we'll actually be doing an interview with um, one of our good friends, Nicholas Paul, who's one of the directors at Long Now. Mm -hmm. um, next week, actually. So yeah, looking forward to that. that yeah, yep. that's gonna be amazing.
Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that, that's a really cool, cool bet. Uh, <laughs> but back to <laughs> where we were. Yeah. the, I mean, the my interpretation of these is that it's more that uh, our our brain hardware uh-huh. um, basically feels uncomfortable with loneliness. Mm-hmm. So, like when you have like these ego dissolution type experience, if there's like some trace of like human ego and and like human programs. Um, I think like the feeling of loneliness comes from that. I think I think like the pure feeling of oneness itself is neutral. Like there's no, it's not positive or negative. Mm. Uh, like oneness itself, I, I think it's, it doesn't have a valence. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a valence once you intersect Ooh. it with other stuff. Like, like, the uh, poet in me would say that that oneness, that yeah. valence is love. I think there's there's a mystical rhapsodic way of viewing that and yeah. it would be you know some might call it god some might call it Tao, sure. some might call it love um i'm i'm i think that's possible i mean i'm i'm open to that view and definitely have had intuitions of that view but but my my sense is that actually love and self-hatred strife are, are i mean they're both states of what i call like self-relating it's like yin and yang it's like how does like the the universal way function relates to itself mm-hmm. it can do it with self-hatred or it could be with yeah. self-love mm-hmm. well, but so they're both states of oneness and that's that's fine like the, for sure yeah the oneness yeah, yeah. itself doesn't come well, with, it, yeah. perhaps yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. perhaps this is this uh, you know maybe maybe we should start approaching the the idea of harmonics in yes that sense, right? because perhaps or, or even coherence because they're closely related concepts sure um and so would it be fair to say that in that state of, of kind of oneness, if, if we were to de-aggregate our consciousness and, and kind of become um, this single perceiver with this neutral state of valence that you're talking about, yep. do you think that's a particular type of universal harmonic? Is that what that is? Is that what there, there's like a particular type of, um, there's no more interference pattern, so to speak, <laughs> in that global function? That, yeah. Yeah. Is that is that? I'm yeah. just if that's not what it is, tell me that, tell me sure, that's the sure. case. I'm but not, I'm curious, like uh, that's what I'm seeing in my head. But I, don't know. I think there would be right, uh, would be less interference. Um, I mean, obviously, there's like a, a whole set of background assumptions being, of course, of course, uh, being played out. We're playing game. fast and loose here. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a podcast. Like you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's life is on the line yet. <laughs> um, no, I think yes. Um, actually, I mean, what these relates to the most is like the question of phenomenal binding. Um, phenomenal binding, for those who haven't heard the term, is a question of like, how is it possible that the brain, which is a spatially distributed system, can um, have all of its components simultaneously contribute to a unified experience? Mm-hmm. Because like you, the way you experience the world um, contains a lot of pieces of information at once. Mm-hmm. Like your visual field has like texture and color Plus, your experience also includes like auditory uh, and tactile information, and you're experiencing all of that at once. You may be focusing on a region of the experience. However, in the background, there's always a bunch more. Uh, I mean, it's the holographic mosaic of the cosmos. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's definitely. I mean, it's holographic in some sense, in the sense that like, but are we experiencing it at once? Because it seems like, at least you know, for example, the the test that I mentioned earlier, yeah. where, where people. Uh, depending on whether or not they were you know, in free fall or not, it's almost as if like their window of consciousness across time was dilated 
um, like either expanded or contracted, which would mean that, you know, there's this sort of um, consciousness would be kind of like this uh, filter or like this like sieve that's extruded across time of sorts or like mm -hmm. this, this pattern that's not at one point in time, right? That it's you know, even the self is happening perhaps across or at least integrating experiences that are happening across uh, a time window yeah. that is being perceived as a particular type of now. And like, depending on whether or not you're being thrown off a bridge, that particular type of now has a different uh, texture yes. in which you are more or less able to um, apprehend particular signals. That's right. Um, the, the crazy thing is that um, the feeling of the passage of time and the information of like the very immediate past, all of that is contained within the present moment. Mm -hmm. um, so actually like a moment of experience itself contains um, it's like the residue of all the past. Well, Holographic residue of sorts? Not, not all of it. I mean, it's like a, a fraction of it and there's a decay function. Right? Yeah. And actually, this is one of the things that psychedelics uh, change the most. Okay. Uh, basically, this is what I call the decay function of qualia. Okay. So, I mean, there's like these studies um, of quantifying like after images on psychedelics. So, mm -hmm. you, lo you look at a, at a lamp on mm -hmm. when you're sober, you close your eyes or they turn it off in a completely dark room. And you see a positive afterimage. A positive afterimage basically is just of the same color. Yeah. So that usually... You see, lamp, you see a ghost lamp. Yeah, yeah. you see a ghost yeah. lamp uh, for a fraction of a second. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then you see a negative afterimage, which is like it's flipped. Like if it was like mm -hmm. green, then you see a, a yellow, mm -hmm. like a, a red. Or like, yeah. But let, forget about the negative afterimage. So just because, because the actual neurons in, in, your, uh, in your, recept your photoreceptors in your eyes are actually... They were like basically habituated or tired or energy deprived. Yes. And then they're recharging, but there's still a sense to that, right? Yes. Which is why you see the opposite image. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and there's like the opponency process. In, yeah. In yeah. in the retina, where yeah. Um, but but let's focus on the positive after image. The so thing that you see for about a second afterwards. You're saying. Exactly. On psilocybin, the positive after. Which would be magic mushrooms. Yeah, which is ma yeah, exactly. magic mushrooms. Yeah. Uh, the positive after image can last for 15 seconds. Oh, wow. And that's that's basically um, what tracers are, right? Like you mm -hmm. move your hand around and you see these copies hanging yeah. around. Um, actually, and, and also I think like what makes psychedelics different is, is the tracer pattern. Basically, yeah. on LSD, you move your hand around quickly in your visual field and maybe you see like seven copies like hanging around. On DMT, you may see like 40. Like DMT is like much faster for yeah. you to see the... The, the rate at which like these um, uh, time slices are like enduring is like much faster. So. Is anything actually changing in the process of the photoreceptors themselves, those no. cells? No, this is all cortical phenomena. Okay, so I, this I is all cortical phenomena and, and that leads to different textures of conscious experience. Yes. But the actual inputs are behaving the exact same way in the eyeballs. Exactly. I think the eyes are, uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't say they're unaffected, but I think it's very minor relative to what's happening in the cortex. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have like serotonergic receptors as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, presumably. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure actually how it's changing the eye, but like relative to how much it's changing the cortex is yeah. probably very minor. Okay. Um, now, so you can kind of like graph like how quickly like specks of qualia decay in, in your experience. Mm -hmm. And usually that's a fairly sharp curve, right? Yeah. Like within one second, like, like 99% of it is gone. Yeah. But that, there's still layering happening. E even when you're sober, there's this constant um, layering of the last sensory input on, on the previous layers. Mm -hmm. 
and the way in which that decays constructs your experience. And on psychedelics, because the decay is a lot lower, uh, takes a lot, a, lot, um, a lot more time, that produces a lot of what's called uh, frame stacking. Mm -hmm. Like uh, mixing. Of, mixing, of, yeah. yeah. Mixing of perception, blending. Blending, blending of different time slices. Mm -hmm. And also the now, the present moment feels a lot more expansive because actually uh, like you were in the kitchen and now you go to the living room, yeah. you still have the impression of being in the kitchen uh, and of the whole transition to the living room. Mm -hmm. Like all of that is still echoing in your brain. Um, so basically, yeah, the decay function becomes a lot fatter. Um, I would say a lot of people say like, oh, the tracers on psychedelics is like kind of like the most superficial aspect of the experience. I think, I think actually that's one of the most important aspects of the experience that give rise to a lot of other aspects of the experience. Mm -hmm. Basically, the tracer pattern provides a new um, shape of your consciousness mm -hmm. where new kind of patterns can exist. Yeah. Like a DMT, for example, I think the layering and frame stacking is so intense mm -hmm. that basically um, if you look at a wall you will see the same wall overlapping with itself and creating layers mm -hmm. and at some point that can't possibly fit yeah and it starts curving and it forms a, what yeah. i call the magic eye level hmm. and then like that itself so that's layered. that's interesting because yeah. that's actually i don't want to go too far off the beaten path here yeah, yeah. but um i was researching some of the uh some of the research that's being done at the uh, quantum gravity research institute um and it's they're, they're an interesting group for a lot of reasons but one of the things that they were talking about whether or not it's true or not is, is another question is this idea of projecting higher dimensional shapes into lower dimensional spaces yep. and the fact that when you do that it actually creates this sort of friction in the lower dimension um, in lower dimensional geometries mm -hmm. and that they're actually building an entire uh, theory of curvature based upon the way that these uh, geometric shapes impinge upon one another and force one another into tighter and tighter spaces and create this bending in this perturbant uh, per perturbations in lower dimensions yeah um and that kind of seems like what you're talking about like when you're looking at like a wall on dmt yeah. and there's not just one wall there's perhaps a thousand walls yep. and they're all kind of competing for the same space and that breaks the geometric model yes. of your normal perception and perhaps explodes it into like a parabolic geometry or, or some non-euclidean uh, yes strange yes. space of, Hyper of hyperbolic geometry mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah uh, that's that's one of the i mean that's definitely maybe the most popular article i've written the yeah. for the, the people on hyperbolic geometry what's the t uh, the title of the article for people who would like to perhaps it's google that the hyperbolic geometry of dmt experiences hmm. and it's i mean I, I i'm very serious about this like i think dmt at a sufficient dose literally makes the experience of space hyperbolic mm -hmm. yeah. and i have like 17 reasons why that's yeah, yeah. Like, so do you think that's a downstream effect of of actually having conscious access to this immense number of stacked frames of perception it's and it's, yet in evolution perhaps you know maybe that was not necessarily the most adaptive mapping yeah. to our environment and so we kind of right. pruned that away Th there's something yes um i would say is the emergent effect of okay. having like the hundreds of stacks competing mm. for the same space mm -hmm. in such a way that the only way in which they can be arranged without um because like i mean think about it like the decay function is like very very fat so like every quote-unquote sensor input but basically any quail that you experience hangs around in your experience for a long time mm -hmm. so there's a wall and then like the same wall overlapped and the same wall overlapped 
the only way in which you can squeeze all of that in mm-hmm. is by changing the curvature of your experience to accommodate it. Yeah. And uh, and there's like I mean there's like more phenomena in, in that direction. Um, but basically, there's this pressure for you to interpret that yeah. curvature. It's like consciousness is almost forced to perceive higher dimensional reality to be able to accommodate the immense amount of information that it's now being forced to, to process and, yes. and, and map into conscious experience. <laughs> yes. Huh. Okay. Cool. Yeah. I like so, that. And I mean, in, in the future, this is kind of an aside. An aside uh, but yeah, in the future, I think like mathematics, mathemat- like top mathematicians will not necessarily use DMT, but like, uh, but like perhaps already have used it. <laughs> no, for sure, for sure, but like, they, they will use the evolution of DMT. They will use something mm-hmm. much more targeted mm-hmm. that produces a controllable hyperbolic space mm. where they can interact with and visualize yeah. objects that don't exist in yeah. our normal geometry. We're already building kind of like uh, props for, for VR, right? right? VR spaces to kind yes. of help as a propodeutic of sorts to help people conceptualize higher dimensional spaces or, or build up a higher dimensional intuition, which is very hard to do when you're when you're working from you know a 2D textbook or just your imagination or just words to try to build that model up. But yes. immersing yourself into those patterns is something that we're, we're just, sorry, but you're, what you're saying is instead of actually using something like an external media experience, actually directly stimulating the brain through substances. Yes, yes, exactly. So, because I mean, the. And VR, I mean, hyperbolic geometry in VR, that's fascinating. There, there, like, there's people, uh, I personally know a couple of people developing that kind of stuff, and it's fascinating. And But it's still a projection of hyperbolic space right. into your 3D yep. Euclidean space. Yeah. On DMT, you actually become a hyperbolic space. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of things you can do in projections, mm-hmm. but when it comes to actually visualizing symmetries, um, and visualizing the actual mathematical structure of something hyperbolic geometry, you need to be in hyperbolic yeah. geometry. The yeah. rest is just, they're filters on qualia. You can't get to the full roots of it. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's kind of like trying to remember a past experience. I mean, you're no longer there. <laughs> yeah. So you can have, you have like some perhaps, you know, latent ability to kind of think of what it was like in terms of symbols. Like, oh, I remember being in the room and there was a table and you're, you know, and Andres was sitting in front of me. And Brian was sitting to my right. Um, but like, I can't actually re-immerse myself in, in this moment once I've left it, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. McKenna, Terrence McKenna, who was a psychonaut of sorts and philosopher of kind, um, he, he always talked about the felt presence of direct experience. That mm-hmm. was a ta- that was a, a, a sort of a motto of his, so to speak. Um, and it's interesting thinking about that, you know, now in today's nomenclature, we might call that mindfulness. Of it depend, you know, everyone has different ways of describing it, but perhaps it's in that presence that we are able to tap into more of this potential richness in the mm. moment. <laughs> that we have these filters, these layers that we put upon the world, perhaps evolutionarily adaptive filters at that, but that the, these DMT experiences or whatever it might be. Um, enables us to perceive reality in a much richer way. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, there's a whole range of experiences that feel much more present, much more intense, much more direct. You feel more alive, more real. Mm -hmm. Um, that's still a tiny sliver (laughs) Mm -hmm. because there's like a whole other like range of state spaces that actually feel less real and more indirect. 
but they are, are also part of the status of consciousness, mm. equally important to understand. I mean, I, like uh, sometimes I make the dichotomy between like DMT and ketamine because, um, I mean, at the extreme levels of ketamine, I think very high doses, like people do feel very much in contact with other realities and stuff like that. But like, let's say like mild doses of ketamine, they literally, I mean, they feel dis dissociative. Like they, they feel like you're, you distance yourself from your experience. Mm -hmm. Of course, like it's actually impossible to distance yourself from, from an experience, right? It's like, there's like this, is something weird happening where your representation of how much in contact you're with your experience is yeah. changing, even though you're always in your experience. Yeah. No so and it's like even beyond like in isn't even a strong enough word for the yeah. for the reality <laughs> we're trying to describe it's, because yeah. we're not in our consciousness. It just no. is what we are. Yes. Which is like again, it's like that that language language that we have isn't even very well constructed to be able to express yeah, a relationship like that. It seems. Yes, exactly. So. In in consciousness, it's it's a phrase that actually feels like makes a lot of sense in the region of the state space I called focus space. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, sober reality, as long as you're not mentally ill, tends to be very focused space. Mm -hmm. um, DMT is like, would you I, say like linear almost in I, that sense? Um, like well, actually, I focused. I mean it in the sense of like how you experience space. Okay. So it has to do with like local and global consistency. So when you're sober, like a region of your visual field, it connects properly with its surroundings. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of this like, I mean, basically everything is connected in a, in a coherent way. On DMT, that's even more intense. Like your whole visual field becomes like hyper-connected. It's mm -hmm. like, it, like things that are very far apart in your visual field, there's like a, a straight line between them and you, you see like, oh yeah, they're part yeah. of the exact same field. Yeah, it's like entangled perception. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and that's like what I call focused space. Ketamine actually produces unfocused space like right away, mm -hmm. even from like small doses, which is it, it actually goes in the opposite direction where like things become more disconnected. Mm -hmm. They're still part of a unified yeah. experience. Which is why it's in, in, classified as a dissociative. Yes. Mm -hmm. okay. um, they still feel, I mean, they're still part of the same experience, but yeah, I mean, there's like some, some dosage uh, on ketamine where uh, you can feel that you're at two places at once, for example. Mm -hmm. It's like super weird. It's like, oh, you're in like a casino in Las Vegas. All of that is like imaginary. And you're also in a park. Yeah. And like they're not in, those experiences are not even interacting with each other and it feels like they're in different parallel realities. They're still part of the same experience, but mm -hmm. they're, they're not trying to become unconflicted. Like rather they, they, they don't care about their lack of coherence. Um, whereas DMT actually enforces coherence super strongly it's mm. like yeah everything has to be connected properly mm. so that's what i call like yeah focused space versus unfocused mm -hmm. okay and yeah i mean and again like yeah ketamine or dmt this is very blunt ways of changing our states of consciousness i mean mm -hmm. in the future we might have like micro injections in the brain where like hey i want like this part of the brain to have more dmt and this other part to have more ketamine and this yeah. other part to have like alcohol or whatever so yeah, yeah. um you will be able to calibrate like, oh, I want more focus here, less focus here. And again, like that's... That's speaking to this clinical phenomenology. Yes. So speak, yeah, on that topic <laughs> and also talking about the future, perhaps yeah. it would be interesting to talk a little bit about, you know, how do you see a deepening of our understanding with respect to consciousness and the way that we might intentionally change our own consciousness um, or understand ourselves through that change of consciousness? 
How do you see us being able to potentially use that as a new tool to perhaps alleviate some of the some of the pathologies of our current society? So, for example, we have, um, you know, do you think it's something that could be used to begin alleviating something like the immense amount of uh, polarization we have, or like, you know, in many ways, people have these different frames of reference. Like, yeah. we argue about politics in many. Uh, one can make a strong argument that we argue about politics because different individuals have very different paths through the world mm -hmm. and therefore those paths lead them to places where they've been exposed to particular types of cultural variables or ideas that, that shape their frame of reference and that can be quite distinct from any other path or any other person in the world and therefore they come to the same table believing very different things about the world we live in and, and wanting to perhaps impose their frame upon the entirety of the world. Yes. Do you think that what the work that you're doing has has bearing there? I mean, I think I think it does, but I'd be interested to see how or hear how you perceive it. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I would say a massive amount. So, like, what I mean right now, like, let's say um, North Korea and the U.S. Okay, so like, what what Donald Trump needs to chat acid with? <laughs> <Don't get it. laughs> Is that what we're getting at? <laughs> Interesting. Uh, dangerous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We get we get the nuclear football out of the room before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> before they drop in. Yes. So I mean, it's like what what do these countries like have in common in terms of values that they would actually want to work together towards? I mean, there's like, I mean, right now you might describe them as like pure replicators. A pure replicator is basically just an entity that just wants to make copies of itself. Mm -hmm. it just doesn't care about anything else. Mm -hmm. um, what does that mean at the nation state level uh that basically like we want to make all countries like us we want we want all countries to be like the us and and and, and, and want the country to be as powerful as possible mm -hmm. even if that system causes massive amount of suffering within the country mm -hmm. uh, and, and from an evolutionary standpoint that's where things tend to go yeah we are lucky that consciousness has been evolutionarily adaptive uh, if it wasn't, then we would all be just pure replicators. Mm -hmm. But actually, there's this tension between the values of consciousness and pure replication. Right now, we're at like a very specific moment in history where there's a, a very genuine tension between the two. It's like evolutionary forces are pushing a lot of uh, things to become pure replicators, just making copies of themselves. Mm -hmm. But a sizable portion of the population actually cares about consciousness. He's like, no, actually, I don't. I don't want to have that many kids. I want my kids to be happy. Mm -hmm. Like, I, like, I, like I, you actually want uh, a minimum standard of living, which is like a value of consciousness, not a value of uh, pure replicators. So, like, what what do the, these countries, which are tending towards pure replication, um, what do they have in common uh, that they're like willing to work together rather than just like for self-preservation? I mean, like, I can understand, like, okay, like, I'm not gonna go to war with this country because of mutually assured destruction. Okay, but that's like a very shitty reason not to go to war with another country. Mm -hmm. It would be much better if you could both agree on, oh, there's this hyper-valuable state space of consciousness that everybody who tries it agrees is way more valuable than anything else we experience that is like worth uh, working towards in both of our countries. So, I love that, by the way. Mm -hmm. Like, I would, we should just tie a ribbon on that. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Like, that's a really important point. Yeah. When we think about the world today and like what's missing and what could actually help heal this world. Yes. To wake up to that true thought that you just beautifully articulated is yeah. possible that we all can tap into it. Yep. Um, 
So, so that reminds me to some extent of, uh, of this quote. I think I mentioned it earlier to you as well um, by Francis Bacon. Uh, he was writing a while ago. So, you know, the metaphors are, are a little bit um, out of place, but he said something along the lines of um, on wax and tablets, one must erase the old before one can write in the new. But in the mind, it is not so. There you have to write in the new before you can erase the old. Yeah. And so I kind of, meaning that you kind of have to paint this picture of a new it. world. You have to let people taste this new reality. Uh, you have to let them, in your terms, get a, get a sense for the new, the new texture that's possible. To believe that it's possible. First. Yeah, so that you could believe and in yeah. it. To see it and then believe in that possibility. And then that's the way things yeah. actually happen and manifest in the world. Yes. You need to generate the vision yeah. uh, to have a common direction to move towards. Mm -hmm. and, uh, that's a more visionary society. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's what we uh, should aim to and um find like very robust effective methods to get there mm -hmm. i mean like mm -hmm. this is why i mean to me the two most promising substances are mdma and 5-meo dmt mm -hmm. um mdma because it's like i mean 5-meo is that the toad yeah that's a toad yeah mm -hmm. um mdma because it produces very high valence of the full spectrum Mm -hmm. I mean, on MDMA, you can feel relaxed, but you can also feel excited or you mm -hmm. can like you can feel wonder. You can like any positive experience gets amplified on MDMA. MDMA is like a what I call like a full spectrum valence enhancer. Um, I mean, I, I don't care that much about, I don't know, like amphetamines or heroin because they're like narrow. It's like on heroin, you'll have a very specific texture of pleasant, but there's a lot of things that are not going to feel better on heroin. Mm -hmm. um, but MDMA is a full spectrum, like pretty much you can experience anything that's positive will be more intense uh, on MDMA. Like it's really tapping into valence and like, because yeah. it keeps kind of like the, uh, it keeps the diversity of the external texture of reality yeah. and, and the, the texture of experience and all of its uh, kind of like the, it leaves the valence landscape un, unmitigated or unchanged or unflattened, untrammeled. Perhaps yes. it just, it just amplifies it, exactly. perhaps. It Whereas something like an opiate, you're saying, kind of makes the entire valence <laughs> landscape uh, flat. It's kind yes. of like bulldozing all of the texture. Yes, so bulldozing I, the texture is a good way of saying it. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, of course, like there's people with idiosyncratic reactions to MDMA. Um, like some people feel it and they feel sad. They, they yeah. take it and feel sad. So it's not perfect. Do we know much about that? Because I personally have some of those experiences, not necessarily with MDMA, but like yeah. even marijuana, like when I was younger, yeah. like a, a, like a much younger teen, like I had, I think what you would probably consider the normal canonical response to, to marijuana. Like it was happy. I was like, I was laughing and giggling and hungry and all that kind of stuff. But somewhere in my twenties that changed and I started getting, you know, more of the anxiety yeah. also like um, sleeplessness and like a hyper, acuity with response to or hypersensitivity to pain like sure. any pain within me was like hyper i was much more sensitive to that yeah um but then i also have like very strange reactions to um uh to medicines that have like drowsy side effects for example mm -hmm. i'll i'll have the opposite it'll, it'll make <laughs> me kind of like you know unable to sleep yeah um do we know anything about why people have like those kind of opposite reactions? I mean, I, I wish. Uh, yeah, we're still very far from that. The genetic component is probably very large. Yeah. Uh, my guess is, yeah, like we'll probably later on, like, yeah, uh, genome edit and and then say predict reaction to different mm -hmm. substances. Yeah, just personalized that. medicine in general. Be mm -hmm. Yeah. 
really helpful in this regard. Yeah, so MDMA. Yeah, we happen to not yeah. all be the same. <laughs> <There's> not, <yeah>. <laughs> <Surprise>. <laughs> Turns out different, yeah, different complex beings interact with different <laughs> substances differently. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Thought>. yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, MDMA, uh, for me, it's like really good lead to like what humanity should become. Mm-hmm. Um, what does responsible use look like to you in that domain? Oh, I mean, right now, I would say MDMA, you should maybe try it once or twice. And then, re- like, for its phenomenology, like, mm-hmm. just like, oh, like, what is a really good high villain state mm-hmm. that doesn't make you dumb? Yeah. Um, like, oh, yeah, try, like, 120 milligrams of MDMA. Like, that's a pretty... Not an actual recommendation, just to clarify. N- no, 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 not an actual recommendation. <laughs> for anyone Some... listening on iTunes. <laughs> Some, something within that ballpark, because, I mean, people in raves take, like, way more. I think, like, the, yeah. the negative aspects, like, way, like, about, like, 200 milligrams, like, it's basically just like yeah playing russian roulette with your brain yeah um and lower amounts i think is just neurotoxicity without a payoff so yeah <laughs> why so do that what you're saying is the sweet spot is 100 milligrams? Uh, 100 to 150 let's say i mean 120 is what like um and shulgin would do would use for yeah, therapy yeah, yeah. and that, that's not like the and that was when you say and shulgin that that was those were the mdma research uh experiments before it was actually schedule one back yeah. in the 60s right and in terms in of the, like uh relationship counseling or in the 80s 70s and 80s yeah 70s and 80s and for therapy mostly yeah yeah for for individual or couples therapy or i think all yeah all types group therapy okay, too yeah. um it's therapeutic usage exactly i mean uh mdma has a lot of drawbacks is neurotoxic it stops working um it it's cardiotoxic like yeah because it's an amphetamine yeah fundamentally i mean and and like uh you like use by use it's probably a lot worse than amphetamine uh like or meth like really yeah so you're you're saying use by use mdma would be more damaging than than regularly using um like Take one person who methamphetamine. Who, is yeah, what you're saying, yeah, yeah. Who tried like a recreational amount of methamphetamine fifty times? Yeah. Versus MDMA fifty times. Uh-huh. I think like the person who tried the MDMA will be more affected mood mm-hmm. and health wise. Mm-hmm. The the reason why MDMA is not as bad as meth is that it's self regulating. Most people yeah. take it like five times, and like by the sixth, is like, well, it doesn't feel the yeah. same. They stop. So is the path to um, Obtaining the positive elements of these current substances without suffering from their negative consequences. Yeah. Do you see that as uh, neuropharmacological? Do you see that as more something that depending on like nanotechnology and being able to intentionally like fuse information technology with miniaturized uh, robots in the brain? Do you, I mean, like there are so many like science fiction scenarios about yeah. this, but like what do you think is the actual or a likely path, perhaps, to being able to walk down this path without too many unintended consequences or negative side effects. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, I mean, honestly, I think like the most likely is threefold. So, very first is pharmacological. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think just like it's not very well explored, like especially like in the space of like peptides, um, like going beyond like simple molecules. Just like um, I think there's probably a whole bunch of compounds that are like just strictly better than MDMA. Mm-hmm. Things that like uh, you could maybe take like ideally we should all be on on a state like MDMA all the time. That's that's my ideal. Um, I think it would be a huge improvement even if we come up with something that is like as toxic as alcohol, which is like okay, a little bit not too toxic. Like you can you can drink a little bit every week weekend mm-hmm. and you'll be fine. Like mm-hmm. you're not gonna leave a lot less. 
So some, some there's like a dose dependency there as well. Right? Yeah, those, yeah, yeah, there's huge dose dependency for sure. Um, and um, but yeah, something that you could do every week, like once a week, I think would just completely change the world if you could do it sustainably without like big mm-hmm. health effects. Yeah, like so even just pharmacological, like I'm like in full support of finding like analogs of MDMA that are like less neurotoxic. Mm-hmm. Just don't don't eliminate all side effects. Just like bringing them down to an acceptable level, and that's huge cultural beneficial change. Um, so that's pharmacological. Second is uh, genetic. I mean, I, I think like gene therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't even need like not a germline editing. I mean, that is to say, not something that you're born mm-hmm. with, but like you inject your brain with like a particular uh, virus that makes your neurons express more uh, serotonin in some regions or oxytocin. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think that probably, I, I get where you're coming from. Yeah. I think that's probably something, that's one of those things where <laughs> when we start talking about, oh, all we have to do is inject your brain with a virus, that, you know, that that's a very sensitive domain, right? It's like, yes. it's like, I think we might get some negative reactions, but, you know, that is, just to, to clarify, I think we are starting to experiment in many fronts with uh, piggybacking medicine and, and, and particular types of uh, genetic technology uh, within well-controlled and well-known viral mechanisms yes. uh, because viruses are, you know, <laughs> have been evolutionarily programmed or adapted so well to being able to inject DNA uh, site-specifically. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, yeah, some of these genetic therapies are very, very safe. I mean, there's definitely more of the stigma than yeah. the... the so then it would, it would temporarily, like you're saying, upregulate or downregulate certain types of gene expression in the brain yeah. that would be able to change the flow of uh, uh, you know, I don't know, hormones or, or transmitters in ways that mimic the effects of something like an MDMA. Correct. Okay. And and the third one, it's uh, with uh, especially if something like brain harmonics, uh, which I can talk more about, uh, will end up actually mattering for valence. Mm-hmm. Then, I mean, really uh, high precision transcranial magnetic stimulation, would, I would suspect, would do a very mm-hmm. big, like really good trick. Yeah, at simulating something mm. like it's like the god helmet. Yeah, the god helmet and and the god helmet right now is like just the hammer. Yeah, like yeah, this yeah. ridiculously yeah. blunt thing. Yeah, like no, imagine like for those who don't know, the god helmet is a, a helmet that was created by researchers. I forget at what university, but uses transcranial magnetic stimulation, which basically uses magnetic coils to target uh, a, a magnetic field at a particular part of the brain to change the actual pattern of firing of neurons in the brain and see what happens and, and this and this helmet people put it on and and feel as if they're being watched by god or that they step outside their body or they have spiritual transcendent experiences but i think what we're saying here is this is a very blunt tool we, yeah. we have no idea how to use it we just are kind of like oh that's weird yeah exactly <laughs> people seem to like feel as if uh god's in the room huh yeah. And that's, I guess, the state of the research right now. Yeah, exactly. Kind of. I mean, I'm being yeah, facetious, yeah. but oh, God. We, have a, we have a ways to go, I guess, <laughs> is what we're saying there. Yeah, I mean, I think like a thousand tiny PMS uh, that is like adaptive, like combination of like EEG, mm-hmm. uh, electroencephalography, uh, machine learning, and like uh, tiny, min- miniaturized uh, PMS mm-hmm. um, that can go up to 100 hertz, like that you put on all over your scalp. Mm-hmm. Like that's like non-invasive. Yeah, and I suspect something like that could probably produce something like MDMA. Yeah, sustainably. 
yeah you, you wake up every day you put it on and like you feel exactly yeah. exactly as well as you did last night perhaps a treatment for depression yeah. perhaps uh, a way of amplifying the um the lasting effects of therapy either personally or, or with your partner um i guess i could could definitely see that being interesting going in like putting putting one of these nets on one's head and <laughs> yeah i, I actually I, I owned a uh Direct current simulation, CDCS. Yeah, yeah. I had one of those machines for a while, and I think this was about four or five years ago now. And I went through a period of using it somewhat regularly, but a I didn't notice that much of a difference, and b you know the more I studied it, the more it was it was like one of those god helmet things where it's just like we don't really know what we're doing there, and it's like such low resolution that you know it's funny because there's a whole Reddit thread of people like speculating as like what the positions are going to do for people positioning these like little you know. uh, electrodes positive and negative on the on the scalp so that it kind of like changes the electrical field and, and parameterizes the firing of the brain but we don't really know what we're doing <laughs> it's like it's kind of playing with fire isn't it yes what about though more of the humanist perspective here which is that maybe we don't need technology at all maybe we already have the technology in us, in us. uh i mean kundalini which yeah. is just breathing practices they call that a, a technology yeah uh, I mean, I'm I'm on the camp that like that like that we've hit like very severe diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. It's like sure, like there's some percentage of the population that can benefit from that type of meditation and like yoga and practice, but it's not gonna. It doesn't help like melancholic depressives. Like it helps it helps people whose problem is anxiety, not melancholia. Like because like I mean meditation definitely in the last like decade or so has been like promoted a lot in the west as kind of like a silver bullet yeah although do you think do you think we know enough to know that if we had a a culture that practiced these these other traditions um kind of technologies like breathing or yoga more frequently throughout life yeah that something like melancholy or depression uh, would occur at lower rates do we have any evidence right. to support or discount an idea like that i mean lower rates yeah but i mean not a solve 20 percent less it's sort of like where within this stack of problems do we want to jump in and try to fix i think i mean for me it's so you a, see them as complementary it's not like you're saying you would not recommend people uh use these other practices that may be uh, even if it's only 20 percent uh, helpful 20 percent helpful no, I mean it's it's good. I mean it's good. Like um, I'm not I'm not saying it's not, um, but it is oversold. And like uh, I, I do think like I mean it's the the whole thing of diminishing returns. I mean it's kind of um, uh, I mean, I'm try, trying to come up with a clear example of this. Like I remember like a uh, being in a at a at a party in college and there was like a, a fat boy or something. Like for some reason he overheard my philosophical conversation with a random guy and. And he said, like, yeah, well, like, the solution to all problem is beer. And, like, <laughs> like yeah, like, sure, like, from your mindset, okay, sure, like, they sold it to you as yeah. a silver bullet for everything. Like, it kind of works, but... It's like kind of like a, in some way, more culturally acceptable form of nihilism, right? I mean, really, you might as well be saying the answer to everything is oblivion <laughs> in some sense. Right. I mean, given that, I mean, or, or unconsciousness, a descent into unconsciousness through a substance like alcohol, because right. you know, what we know about alcohol in terms of um, you know, shutting down the prefrontal cortex. Right. Um, there, there's quite uh, a it disinhibits behavior, but it also, you know, completely dissociates us from this part of our brain 
that is this rational part of our of our consciousness that makes us quite acutely aware of our own insufficiencies, of our own inadequacies or insecurities. Mm. Um, you know, and so I guess what he was really saying is like, <laughs> I'd rather just not think about it <laughs> in a way. Is that sure. fair? I, I mean, in, or maybe he had an anxiety disorder. I mean, like, yeah, alcohol like won't help with that. Yeah, it doesn't really sound like a sustainable approach. And no, nor, and nor e- either are we is, is are psychedelics. I mean, I think uh, right. one of the stories of awakening, maybe you could say, that I really take to is the story of Ramdas. Um, you know, Richard Alpert of uh, you know was like the one of the, the most important sort of psychological researchers in the field as a tenured professor at Harvard. I mean, most people listening to this might be familiar with him. He was cohorts with Timothy Leary. He was involved in a lot of the early psychedelic research. Mm-hmm. And he had these mystical experiences where he was taking these substances, psilocybin, LSD. They were really experimenting with everything they could get their hands on. And he found that he would attain enlightenment, as he put it, in these mystical experiences induced by these substances. But then he would lose it. It would go poof, you know, like I had a great evening and then the next day it's like, oh, it's just me again. And his path, his quest was to try to maintain this higher state of being. And it took him into his journeys through India and, and into Ram Das as he became to be known, um, which I think is just like a servant of love. Yes, yeah, so, or a servant of God, I think. Servant of God. God is love. Love is what you attend to, as Kierkegaard <laughs> might add. Um but nevertheless, it's going back to these ancient traditions and the way that they view the world, it, it per- lends itself to um, theories. And then we often like Jordan, Matthew and I are big Jordan Peterson fans. He, he, Jordan Peterson talks about theories as tools. Yeah. Tools for phenomenological being is yeah. what they ultimately become. Um, and, and in fact, I think they're probably heightened by the mystical psychedelic experience because it expands the horizon, the palettes that you can now paint the cosmos with, or you're, you're, you're moving through the world. Yeah. So I guess I would just, I would just maybe bring up this idea of a hybrid approach to this, that if we do rely too heavily on the technology and the drugs or whatever people are, you know, whatever gets you off, that you're really missing an important part of this, which is if you do come also from within, from your breath, from these ancient, ancient sort of ways of attaining these peak experiences. I mean, we also ecstatic experience, ecstatic experience, experiences, uh, shots of awe. Right. So we we should bring in. We were talking earlier about the Flow Genome Project and, and all the studies and, and research that's, be, that's been done on flow as a as a psychological yeah. experience. Very similar. Um, and these types of experiences show up everywhere, whether in sports or music or um, everyday. Well, I guess like the, the world. idea of flow. Um, <laughs> it's interesting, like the words that we use to represent phenomena, um, and and how and we use the words, and yet we don't really consider them that deeply. So, for example, the state of flow um, is is it kind of piques my interest right now, given our previous conversation about um, emotional or experiential texture, because flow is this word that implies a lack of friction. Mm-hmm. kind of like a smooth flow yep. um, and so in a way you know it has this this texture of moving through space and time in your own Fluidly. personal experience yeah, yeah with, without the friction of uh, w- without the experience of what otherwise might cause friction or pain or suffering right. or um, a lack of you know lack of attention or, or, or drawing one's attention away or inducement of anxiety um, the flow is this place where 
can find this balanced state and and all of that kind of falls in you know, all of that texture of consciousness falls into a, a place where you're kind of superconductive, right? You have this like this element of like superconductive potential. Yeah. Perhaps like you're like most most thoroughly manifesting your potential at that moment in time. Hmm. Um and, and least subject to what you would usually perceive as holding you back or, or causing friction. Yeah. And there's also, I mean there's still technologies in like let's say you get flow and playing tennis i mean you're still using a technology of the tennis racket of the tennis <laughs> well, and the other people and rules and, of the game rules of the game all of it exactly so <laughs> so the all the stacks it's turtles all the way down there's technology all the way um and i guess your work is more speaking to new technology that actually has a ubiquitous type of impact yeah I mean, I think uh, I would come back to diminishing returns. And he's like... <laughs> um, Keeping us grounded. <laughs> that like is a, good. It's good. Like, uh, I mean, this is the same in, uh, for like uh, altruism uh, and like uh, helping the world. It's like uh, going against climate change is good, right? It's like not a bad thing to try to, to prevent. Um, but compare the difference of like becoming like just one more person in a demonstration against climate change mm-hmm. versus being a scientist who like actually figures out like a technology that will actually reduce yeah. um, em- like CO2 emissions mm-hmm. or like in vitro meat or like uh, basically like sure being one more person in a demonstration is a little bit like it's a marginal benefit, but it's just like orders of magnitude less good than actually producing something new. The same with or perhaps idea. less less effective or less um, holds less potential to actually meaningfully change the outcome. Yeah. So the the same I think like with breathing, meditation techniques and stuff like that is like oh I think that's that been completely completely done. Like I think like what we could get out of that is like already like fully fully mapped out. Um, so we just we pissed to... off all of our meditation loving fans. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. No, that's that's what we're here for. We're trying to find connections between all of these different perceptions of, of what's valuable. And uh, no, and I think there's definitely the 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 perception that that we haven't hit diminishing returns that might have to to do a little bit with uh, I mean, being in the West and uh, like oh, this is I mean, there's a very large conservative con- contingent and whatnot. Like for sure, like for a lot of people, this is shocking and, and big news. But I think like uh, worldwide, it's just it's old news. It's not it's not not like super uh, new. And there's a bunch of disorders for which it just doesn't help. Um, again, like melancholia is like uh, to me like the, the strongest example. Like just meditation doesn't help melancholia. If anything, it may exacerbate it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, whereas like some antidepressants actually do help melancholia a lot. So, like yeah. consider like pianeptine or amineptine. Um, uh, MAOI inhibitors. There's like stuff that like actually has a very yeah. strong effect size. I imagine MDMA yeah. and me- mushrooms would also yeah. help with melancholia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, MDMA temporarily. Uh, I mean, MDMA is great for getting rid of trauma, but not sustainably. Right, right, right. And so then the other, the other thing I would also say is effect size. Like, like, um, uh, like again, like, um, kind of like uh, obtaining a uh, changing your brain with like. 20 years of loving kindness meditation. Yeah. Maybe it can put you in like what it feels like to be on like 90 milligrams of, of MDMA all the time. But, and, and I would say like maybe that's like a 10 out of 10 of happiness mm-hmm. uh, within the human range of experience. But what I'm aiming for is like 100. Like I'm, I'm 
aiming for like something way bigger that like from that point of view uh most of human experience is just peanuts it's just <laughs> marginal like a rounding error relative to like the actual potential in the universe mm -hmm. yeah so maybe one interesting distinction that we're talking about or that we should dig into a little bit is like we're talking about this element of you know what we have within us or these types of experiential um, technologies which would be you know meditation or yoga or um, breathing exercises uh, and we're kind of like in some way thinking of those as as natural whereas this other realm you know we're, we're using the word technology in some ways for both but then we're, we're also drawing a distinction between them in terms of like this ability of some to far more acutely impact our experience like it's kind of what you're saying it's like they're, they're far more powerful but there's a flip side of that and i would i would point to the idea or the the reality of um processed sugar is an interesting example there yep. right where you know, sugar exists in nature in the state of nature it exists in fruit you know fructose is also always found with fiber um and in a way they're kind of a yin and yang uh, they're kind of like a antidote um, and poison all in one uh, yep. in terms of the way that they're processed by the body and the liver. But then we separate them and we take the sugar out and we refine the sugar and we have an extremely intense and acute response to it. Yet we're now also seeing that there are extreme unintended consequences of that acute use of sugar. That's right. And that's not unnatural, right? It's just concentrated <laughs> kind sure. of, right? Sure, sure, sure. And so in, in, I think to some extent, what I'm hearing from you is a similar line of progress towards having those concentrated experiences neurophysiologically, hmm. which kind of raises the question in my mind, do you also foresee potential unintended side effects or consequences in the same way that we've yeah. discovered with, with sugar? Yeah, uh, right. I'm, 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 sure, I'm sure there's lots of side effects to a lot of different very good states of consciousness, but... Mm -hmm. I suspect uh, the status of consciousness is sufficiently large. Mm -hmm. There's like a lot of them that are like extremely healthy and sustainable, mm -hmm. even if they're like extremely, extremely intense. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I would point out, for example, like DMT people have been known to like take it like every four days, like like in like Union de Vegetal, I think, like in, yeah. in Brazil. And, like they conducted studies of people who've been doing it for 20 years mm -hmm. and like, okay, do they have like any cognitive, behavioral, like emotional deficits? It's like, no, actually they are like slightly better off than the people around them mm -hmm. that don't partake in this. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, there's some things that you can like massive increases to the amount of consciousness that you can experience without apparently really suffering that much of a side effect. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, then again, DMT, I would consider it as like a very... Um, very mixed valence. Mm -hmm. I mean, DMT produces both very pleasant and very unpleasant states, and mostly a lot of mixed states, things that are like both very pleasant and very unpleasant at the same time. Perhaps it's strange. Yeah, very bizarre. <laughs> very, very bizarre. <laughs> bizarre, yeah. But I think like there's like so maybe something equivalent to DMT, but that is like pre probably just very close to pure bliss. Mm -hmm. That you could probably also just do like every four days or something like that. Eventually, all the time. Hmm. Um, and I, I would go back as well with hyperthemics. I mean, these the people, one in a thousand. Um, again, intuitively, you may think, okay. That's like, not it, insubstantial. No, no, no. It's, it's huge. Yeah. Uh, they've measured like their um, gene expression. They're, they're, they seem to be different in their SCN9A gene, which basically codes for 
uh, opioid receptors. Mm -hmm. um, so they have like more opioid receptors. Um, and uh, in generally, they're just like happier. And our body produces its own endogenous opioids. Yeah. So that would mean that they would be um, experiencing the effects of more of what the body already produces. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, at a higher rate. Yeah. Exactly. And, and uh, if, if you look at like their, like in general, not only they're happier, and you, you may think like, well, that may just, that would just lead them to be like couch potatoes or something, right? But the, in practice, actually, people who are hyperthemic um, are smarter. They learn faster. They mm -hmm. learn more things. Yeah. The thing is, like, they don't only find life more rewarding. They find a wider variety of experiences rewarding. <laughs> so they're, like, into more stuff. Yeah, because that is the positive. I mean, like, that's a learning mechanism. I have read about that in the sense that um, there's this moment of, you know, if you're working on a very difficult problem, and then, you know, you, you solve that problem, whether it's a math problem or something that you're trying to figure out at, in your home or who knows, in a relationship, a sticking point. And then you unstick the sticking point and then you get that rush of euphoria. Yeah. You know, that's the endogenous opioids. Sure. That is that state of being, you know, naturally high in an experiential realm as a consequence of your actions. Yeah. And so it's kind of nature's way of saying, like, do more good of job. that. Yeah. yeah, good job. Here's a pat on the back. Yes. And so, like... In a way, I think what you're saying perhaps is that those who are hyperthemic have a, it's almost as if they're always learning more in terms of positive reinforcement. Right. Do they tend to be religious or spiritual? I don't know. If, uh, that would be interesting to, to look would into. Be, would be super interesting. Mm, yeah. I mean, I, I would suspect that they would be like, kind of like positive religiosity in the sense they probably are less concerned about suffering. I mean, like, just as a... Right, I mean, like people who tend to be happier, they tend to have a optimistic view of life, mm -hmm. and people who tend to be sadder, they tend to have a pessimistic view of life. Mm -hmm. Like, and and also in religion, I mean, like, I don't know if there's evidence of this, but like in my personal experience, what I have found is like, yeah, people who are like very happy, they tend to focus on what heaven would be like, or like how, or however they interpret things or make sense of. Right, but yeah, whereas depressives, they may be more concerned about hell or like how mm -hmm. to avoid hell, right, or right. like. But yeah, so Buddha said, "What we think, we become." Be what? careful with our thoughts. Sure, sure, sure. Um, yeah, and, and, and thoughts are also a reflection of one's mood. Yeah. So. <laughs> Important fulcrum or leverage point in the sort yeah. of feedback process of life. I think that that's actually really interesting, and I don't want to go down this route too far. But um, you know, you had mentioned that we we discussed Jordan Peterson sometimes. Um, he's said quite frequently that he had struggled throughout his life with extremely depressed states and depression who sir? jordan peterson he's oh, uh, yeah he's a um, psychologist and philosopher who's come to acclaim um or um ignominy depending on who you uh, ask um but he also not only has he struggled with depression but prominent there's a prominent thematic underlying his work of you know this focus on um hell as a psychological place that we can bring ourselves into through like a, an amplification or consequence of, of our actions, like a spiral into like, you know, our actions, one bad action leading to another bad action, leading to a another bad action, cycle. a vicious cycle of everything falling apart and, and one's life becoming hell. Yeah. Um, or also this idea that like, you know, axiomatically life is suffering. But, you know, I think what I'm hearing you say is that perhaps, you know, those are obviously not uncorrelated. Like there's this deep connection between, having experienced these subjective depressive textures of reality at such a deep level 
and looking at the world through the lens of primarily suffering. Yeah. 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 And it's it's also possible that one can see that suffering and, and experience depression as one might experience it mm-hmm. and actually come out of that with a new appreciation for mm-hmm. life and that it actually adds to the full range. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was young, right? For one's branches to reach up to heaven, one's roots must reach down to hell. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> kind of a powerful idea. Sure. I mean, I... But, Which is kind of antithetical to what you're saying, because yeah, I think yeah. what you're saying is one's branches can reach up to heaven experientially without the roots having to be connected yeah. deeply yeah. to hell. Correct. And Peterson also talks about virtuous cycles as, you know, that... You, yeah, you go, certainly. You can certainly, go in the right direction, and I think that is the direction we want things yeah. to head. I mean, I think, I think there's definitely a lot of like learned self, uh, learned helplessness as in like, we are just so used to suffering. We don't, we don't think it's a, yeah. a big deal anymore, but, um, I mean, what, that's really sad. Yeah, I know. <laughs> thing, and you know, Martin well, Seligman. Like people, and, and people like walking down the street here and like stepping over people who are homeless and then going and voting for helping the homeless and feeling okay about it. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of issues uh, with that. suffering everywhere all around us and we don't necessarily act. Right. Um, Sorry, you're... The, the, I mean, the, 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 the truth, I think, is like that, yeah, like, um, I mean, in, in fact, like, being connected to hell, like, the, the full spectrum of experience, actually, I suspect, detracts from the experience of heaven. Uh, Wait, say look, that again? Yeah, that was like your valence edition that you were mentioning earlier. Yeah, like, even the very, like, the mild awareness that there is such a thing as experiential hell. Yeah. Like, itself diminishes the quality of, of heaven, I think. Huh. Like, I, I take the kind of opposite. Ex- like, oh, <laughs> dude, that's a really fascinating thought. <laughs> I like long term. Yeah. And then very long term. So is ignorance bliss then? I would aim for invincible ignorance <laughs> in the very long term. Yeah. Not, not in the short term. I mean, in the short yeah, term. Yeah, yeah. Like once, once we have eliminated suffering and we've done everything we can to help all sentient beings that are available yeah. in our light cone. Yeah. Then we forget about yeah, suffering. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. a really fascinating thought. Yeah. Uh, but I guess that also brings up the question of, um, you know, there are these deep, you know, within our spiritual history, um, across all world traditions, uh, thematics of, of duality tend to arise. You know, the light and dark or the, the left and the right or the heaven and hell or whatever you might want to, masculine and feminine. There's all these different types of archetypal dualities. Um or figure and ground in an image, right? The background and the foreground. Um, and there are certain types of theories of truth and certain types of theories of, of, of being that seem to propose that those are inextricable, that one cannot be experienced without the other, or without the other, um, there's even no frame of reference to experience, you know, one yeah. side of that equation. Right. And if you tried to remove one side, <laughs> that the other side would just, you know, rebirth itself from yeah. the pieces so this like the if you like so like if you look at the yin yang for yeah. example so yeah. let's say that you have the yin yang and you take the white symbol and you remove it from the equation you're just left with the black yeah. but there's still the eye of the white sure. in the black that would then in theory potentially grow to become <laughs> the new uh newly full uh yin yang it would, it would grow into like the other half again so you don't think that that's necessarily uh, a foregone conclusion that if we, no matter what we do, if we try to push ourselves to the eradication of, of suffering, that it won't just reseed itself in some way we can't predict. 
I mean, I think I think is worth trying. <laughs> I agree with you there. I think we're in complete agreement there. Yeah, it's definitely I, worth trying. Yeah, and, and I suspect it's definitely worth trying. I suspect you don't like you. You don't need both. Um, I mean, like, uh, is there anything specifically that gives you this that yeah. suspicion? I mean, just like take um, take a brain that is on MDMA in a like very very good state, mm-hmm. and just make copies of it, and just like or like. If you're a functionalist about consciousness and you think you can simulate it in a computer, sure, whatever. Just simulate that one second of bliss over and over. Like, how 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 is suffering entering into that picture? Like, just not need it. Just like, and even if contrast, so like that. Yeah, contrast is essential. Okay, right? Sure. So if contrast (laughs) is essential, (laughs) um, take take a person who who suffered a lot and now finally they're like entering a pleasant moment. Like, oh, that amazing feeling of relief. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe the depth of that relief requires the contrast of having experienced all that negativity before. Sure, let me grant you that. Now, take that state of that brain at that point in time and make copies of it. Mm-hmm. Just like you, you, you don't actually need to have each of those copies have experienced. I can hear people before. in our audience cringing at the reductionist <laughs> <laughs> approach to, to phenomenology that that sort of alludes to. Right. Well, it, 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 these would assume, yeah, like physicalism, like uh, the state of your consciousness is like directly a result of the state of your brain on a given point in time. Yeah, because one of the things that I wanted yeah. to bring up with you is the idea of embodied cognition as well. Sure. Um, and you mentioned Lisa Feldman Barrett's work. She talks a lot about interoception, which is how our every moment, our every being, every our phenomenological being is in many ways informed by how we feel in our bodies. Mm. Mm-hmm. Which would not necessarily be anti-physicalist. It would just be not necessarily. It would be beyond what's in the brain, right? It's like the 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 fact that the brain itself is not the full embodied cognition of experience. That right. we need the the wholeness of experience and the embodiment. Um, to be able to to get the full texture of yeah. the experience, mm. perhaps. Yeah. Are you familiar at all with integrated information theory? Yeah, yeah. Which is like speaking to this idea of like, you know, consciousness is like the integration of a system, and you know, our brain is a very integrated system of neuro- yep. of synapses that are tying all these neurons together. But our whole being consists of not only that amazing network that is our brain, but also our gut and our heart and all these different sort of sense organs. Right. Well. I mean, uh, but you'd say it all comes back to the brain, perhaps. So I think that I mean I, I wouldn't be a priori like a, like from the very start opposed to something like radical embodied cognition. Um, I just think it's been disproven empirically. In what way? Well, so basically, you don't need a body to experience a body. So mm. we we know these because you can put yourself in sensory deprivation, mm-hmm. and like. Um, consciousness doesn't diminish it actually becomes intensified yeah uh second you can like dreaming doesn't require sensor input is like uh totally within your own uh the states of your brain uh and you experience a whole simulated environment and a sense of body third people with um uh phantom limbs and phantom legs Mm -hmm. like okay like you don't actually need the physical body to Mm -hmm. feel that you have a body um and finally directly stimulating over you you at once had that body part you, has, you still have all the, you know, it, it's like if you had chopped a, a limb off of a tree. No, I, th- I think it's people who are born without uh, a leg who also experience phantom legs. This would be interesting. But they also AI have an entire evolutionary well. history of those neural pathways behind them. Uh, yeah, but, I, but, but that's, that, I think that doesn't bear on the argument, though. 
because you could you could generate a brain from scratch uh, that also I mean that 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 person could have been hmm. that is the frame problem that's why you know it was so difficult for so long in the AI domain to make progress uh, in terms of um, figuring out how to actually approach all the information that you were seeing and, and what was important and what was not important and how to actually because there's there's many different ways to um, apprehend the visual data coming in mm -hmm. and without being embodied in that space uh, without being able to move around and experience those different uh, parts of reality and, and map meaning to them yep. in terms of your actual functional goals and, and your actual experience uh, it's very different to start um, de-aggregating one thing from another and actually starting to understand what things mean around you. And they made substantial progress in terms of you know artificial intelligence systems when they were like, hey, let's actually put it in a robot. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it makes it easy, easier. Easier. Yeah. But it's not necessary. Okay. I mean, so you think we can work backwards from there once we have the consciousness that we don't necessarily need to still keep it embodied? Yeah, I mean, you can cut off uh, all the... Um, all the nerves that go towards your brain. Uh, so there's like no no sensory input, let's say, from tactile input uh, into the brain. And if they stimulate uh, your homunculus, which is basically a, a band in your somatosensory cortex, mm -hmm. you will hallucinate bodily feelings. Yep. So actually, I think like your feeling of your body is like in some sense disconnected from your actual physical body. It's like all part of the brain state. Um, I mean, again, like if, if that's true, I think like, um, yeah, uh, basically you can probably make uh, creating consciousness much more efficient. I mean, like you can rather than having a body and a brain, you can just have like a bigger brain. <laughs> what about what about the idea of you know, let's uh, well, we're, we're getting pretty deep into this here <laughs> and we're we're all, we're going on over two hours in. Yeah. Um, but maybe like we could we could talk about one more little thing here and then wrap up. I was curious. um talking about brain state, but we're finding out more every day about the way that other organisms in our own body, namely, you know, bacteria right. colonies in our stomach, our gut bacteria, yeah. um, are able to transmit information through our, our nervous system within our stomach to the brain and, um, and develop kind of a relationship, um, perhaps even kind of control our behavior. So how does that fit into your model? How do those types of relationships between our what we consider our, the boundaries of our own consciousness, and these other colonies that inhabit us that we don't necessarily think are controlling us, but may very well be. Right. Well, I mean, there's like the kind of like deep philosophical aspect of this. I mean, they're, they're like for practical reasons, yeah, I would say like, yes, let's consider your bacteria part of, of you. Mm -hmm. But for practical reasons, they're like super important for your well-being and your health. Mm -hmm. But if you ask me kind of like in rigorous philosophy of mind, like, I don't, I don't think they're part of your consciousness at a given point in time. Um, it comes back to the question of phenomenal binding. Like, what aspect of your brain is uh, instantaneously contributing to your state of consciousness? Mm -hmm. And I suspect it's a relatively small percentage. Like, of all the energy in your brain, maybe like 0.1% is actually part of your consciousness at a given point in time. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's, I, I can't even begin to think of how one would even calculate that. Right. Uh, it, would, okay. it would be, I mean, there, there's ways of doing that, I think, uh, especially once you research psychedelics as well. Okay. Because on psychedelics, I mean, a lot, a lot of people think that what I'm about to say is absurd, but I think is like totally true. On psychedelics, you experience more consciousness. Um, there's more qualia. Yeah. 
like as I said, like the right, like the decay of qualia becomes like fatter, like things like last longer, mm-hmm. and there's like stacking of frames. Mm-hmm. There's like just more consciousness. Yeah, well, because you have like a, uh, a combinatoric explosion of, of perceptions. Like you have all these frames, and you have to like deal with <laughs> all of them stacked together at it once. Also yes. stimulates what the Buddhists call beginner's mind, yeah. mm-hmm. as if you've mm-hmm. seen a tree like you've never seen a tree before. Right. Yeah. There's a, this immense beauty that previously was unnoticed. Yes. Yes. Also, the tree is, is perhaps the fact that you've never seen it before or <laughs> feel as if you've never seen it before derives from the fact that you literally are now perceiving the world in a way which you never have, which you never have because you're forced to do so because you're having to comprehend like a thousand stacked <laughs> frames yes. or like read effectively trying to read like a thousand pages of the book simultaneously. Or right. Something like that. Hmm. Yeah. 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 So, um, I mean, I think uh, within the physicalist paradigm, uh, again, like physicalism is not anti-consciousness. Um, I guess I didn't touch upon that, but basically within physicalism, you can have also panpsychism, like, mm-hmm. okay, like quantum uh, fluctuations, like oscillations in quantum fields are literally what consciousness is made of. Mm-hmm. Uh, what the brain would be doing is making a lot of um, energy uh, in a state, putting a lot of energy in a state of coherence. Mm-hmm. So it's actually just kind of like if the universe is a lot of like specks of experience, yeah. like mm-hmm. tiny mind dust, yeah. Yeah. the brain is putting a lot of that mind dust in a state of coherence yeah. and creating a unified experience. Sort of like a radio tuning into frequencies. Yeah, all of those little mind dust tuning into each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that I think are probably like proteins inside your your neurons that do that that do that yeah. yes yeah. and on psychedelics i think there's just more proteins that get synchronized hmm. with each other so it's interesting so bdnf brain derived neurotrophic factor is like a key catalyst to neurogenesis mm-hmm. which the research of psychedelics shows it stimulates so that would prove that to be the case well there's the acute effect and then the long-term down the line yeah. long-term effect and i think like bdnf um it's a Kind of like a side effect that happens maybe over the course of several hours after you take okay, it. Okay, I see, yeah. So, it, I mean, just like the, the instantaneous. You're effect. talking about the, in, yeah, yeah, I, I hear that, yeah. If this state yeah. that you're talking about in terms of, um, you know, the, the dynamics of the brain being a tool for creating a sort of coherent pattern uh-huh. um, in, in like these fluctuations uh, of, of energy, um, do you think psychedelics then? When they when they increase that pattern, does it retain its coherence? Is it increasing coherence, or does it decohere to some extent um, temporarily? Does it depend on how experienced you are? Can you like, depending on how you navigate that psychedelic experience, like do it more or less coherently? Um, well, the, yeah, this is hard to answer. I mean, there there is a I do have an answer to that, and that is like the distinction between global binding and local binding. So. Global binding is like all of the consciousness that is part of your experience. Mm-hmm. And then local binding is like how that experience is like put together into a coherent picture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, on a very high dose of DMT or any psychedelic actually increases global binding. There's just like more consciousness that you're experiencing. Yeah. But they can feel disconnected. Mm-hmm. I mean, the ketamine actually would be a good example. Like it, it feels like you become more disconnected. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, paradoxically, you have more consciousness. There's like it's more intense in some weird way. Okay. Um, the valence is valence. Well, the valence range becomes larger. Right. So you can experience more intense pleasure, more intense suffering right. uh, on any psychedelic. And um, 
I think like what experience allows you on a psychedelic is local binding. I mean, it's basically having a more coherent experience yeah. in, in the kind of standard language of like, oh, this made sense. Yeah. But like amount of consciousness, I think it, it doesn't matter the amount of experience, a yeah. high dose of DMT will like multiply how much consciousness you have, uh-huh. even if it's completely incomprehensible and bizarre. <laughs> yeah. So this, this is giving me a really weird idea and tell me if this has ever been done. But so the first question is, do you think that we could map these same concepts that you're talking about onto um, something like an ant colony? Yeah. And if these metaphors hold and if you can do that mapping, has anybody ever tried to yeah, dose an ant colony? Oh, <laughs> and no, like but... observe the actual differences in behavior? Because that seems like that would be kind of that interesting if interesting. they if they are a collective intelligence. Well, there is research. I think out of Stanford, someone's trying to map how ant colonies swarm is similar to the way yeah. brains. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so then like the next stage like, it might be interesting. <laughs> you might be able to derive some in, see, yeah. it, some insights about how the brain changes in with respect to the flows of information in psychedelic states yeah. by doing something like dosing a collective that intelligence. That would be an amazing study. So I think the study should be done. Yeah. <laughs> Just because it sounds like fun. And like, I what like does an ant colony look like with some like psilocybin yeah, low dose? Let's it. do it. Yeah. Super interesting. Now, yeah, to be to we're be, gonna make that happen. That's the, one of the first goals <laughs> of catalyzing coherence. We're gonna dose some ants and see what happens. Yes, I mean just to be with, I mean yeah. with you know under under strict guidance by ethical. And all <laughs> yeah, and, yeah well. don't worry. We're not just gonna go out in the backyard and right. Um, <laughs> this might this would fit into maps purview. I think it would be. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Should put that out there. Yeah, I mean th- that's it. Yeah, to be to be honest, I don't think I don't think an ant colony is a subject of experience. I think mm. I think each ant. Uh, I mean, the ants have like tiny brains. I'm sure they're like there's a subject of experience there. Like ants are conscious. I think um, there is a small small consciousness. I mean, like right. it's probably like take take like a tiny piece of your experience right now. Mm-hmm. Like maybe that's all of the information that is contained within the experience of an ant. Yeah. So not not very much. Still conscious, but I don't think like the collective ant colony forms any mind. Do you think we have collective consciousness? Uh, I doubt it. I mean, I doubt it because... Well, if, if we are this, these wave functions without distinct boundaries... Uh, well, there is boundaries. Um, there's, boundary, there's boundaries on the coherence. So... Um, on local coherence. On local coherence, yeah. Well, yeah. But so, you don't think that in particular patterns of enough local coherence in the right patterns, you can have... A, a larger state of coherence in the colony or in the society or I'm a, in I'm the species? I'm agnostic. I'm okay. agnostic. Uh, I mean, some weird experiences I've had and also lots of reports. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess also, yeah, like the research that like noetic foundation type people, like people yeah. who are like studying like um, yeah. paranormal effects, psi, psi, like, okay, like they, they find like some small effects. Mm-hmm. They claim is not for, not by publication bias. And like, it's interesting to look into those analyses. And I think let's, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting enough that is I think it's worth continuing to explore. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm not I wouldn't count on it. I mean I within physicalism like hey like if you take seriously quantum mechanics and you also take seriously that consciousness is um, oscillations in quantum fields, mm-hmm. it takes a lot of effort, like a lot of super careful design to create macroscopic coherence. Mm-hmm. Like even within a brain, if this theory is, is true is correct um each frame of coherence would only last like 10 to the minus 13 seconds like it would be an extremely brief like snapshot Mm -hmm. 
Um, and it takes extremely well calibrated neurons that are like connected um, together in a closed compartment to actually generate that coherence. I think like just the air between us eliminates all kind of quantum coherence between between sure brains. sure, sure. Mm. Um, I think I think we would be confined like it, uh, the coherence is confined between brains. Mm. Uh, it's an interesting hypothesis. Yeah. Perhaps yeah, yeah. we can we can test it someday. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so just wrapping up because we're getting we're getting into the you know we've we've gone quite quite a while here. I think it's a great conversation, and maybe we can continue it on another episode later down the line. <laughs> um, is there anything that you would you know wrapping up? Is there anything that like if there were one message that you could broadcast to the world about the work that you're doing and, and the, the types of things that that you would like to see? Um, what you'd like to see accomplished? What are the results that you'd like to see from this? Or what would you like people to know about this or take away from this? Um, yeah, well, it would be something like if you combine um, math and um, considering love very valuable, mm -hmm. like that actually takes you to a path of like studying valence scientifically. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of math plus love. Yeah, math That's, plus love. I, I like yeah. that equation. Yeah, math plus love. Like, take both very seriously. You make t-shirts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, it's like, I, I mean, I, a lot of the things I say in Qualia Research Institute, like, it sounds super alien, but it's really just the consequences of taking math and love very seriously and, like, seeing where that takes you. And, like, hmm. one, one example maybe to wrap up here is that, right, like, a in the age of newton right like physics is like oh yeah like physics is about like the trajectory of an apple when you throw it right <laughs> it's like, it's like okay fa fast forward like 200 years mm -hmm. um it's like no physics is about like 11 dimensions <laughs> and, like the planck scale and like yeah macroscopic quantum coherence just like and black holes and magnetars and like insane stuff mm -hmm. But it's just like straightforwardly taking seriously like empirical science mm -hmm. uh, and mathematical modeling. Now, think about it the same like right now. Like, hey, like take love seriously. Take like pleasure and happiness seriously. Mm -hmm. Where the hell does that take you? Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be equally weird, if not a lot more. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that we, we don't, we currently can't imagine how weird it is, like the implications of taking love like very seriously. And that's what we're trying to do. That's beautiful. I just want to acknowledge that. <laughs> to commend that, that's a great effort. Um, and maybe even as we do approach the end of this uh, episode, where we're thinking about, you know, we talked about this idea of the harmonic society, and you have this really beautiful notion that harmony is symmetry over time. Yes. So for those listeners that have been with us throughout the duration of this episode and trying to instill some harmony in what we've been doing, can you maybe in a, in a meta way elaborate on what harmony represents to you in the context of love, in the context of beauty, in the context of evolution itself? Yeah, so harmony, I mean, yeah, harmony, um, there's a lot of people who say like, hey, the world needs more harmony, more understanding, and so, and I think like harmony, like literally, it's pleasant because it's symmetry over time. Mm -hmm. um, within the window of attention of, of the human brain, I think like harmonic states um, are pleasant because they're more symmetric, uh, this is kind of in within our theory of, uh, of valence, like what makes an experience pleasant. Um, and again, like yeah, if you take seriously, like harmony is like really, really key. Actually, that that points towards um, 
I, I don't know if this is good to say say in, in in among some crowds, but it kind of like defeats postmodernism in the sense of like, oh, like any society is like equally valid or something. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, there's some societies that allow human flourishing and some that don't, yeah. mm-hmm. um, or like to different degrees. And like really understanding what like harmony and what love is would allow us to create, yeah, what I call a harmonic society. Yeah. And in a harmonic society, that entails that how everybody else feels is transparent to you. It's like you can relate to other people yeah. perfectly. It's like you understand how well they feel and why. Uh, and for example, like how much you get uh, compensated for the work that you do would be directly proportional to the amount of effort it takes. Because we have like perfectly quantified mm-hmm. effort in states of consciousness. So there's like no one justice whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and also everybody would be motivated to help each other because there's like they understand we're all part of the same universal way function. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no separation between people in that sense. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. And I, I would love to dig further into <laughs> I would love to dig further into that idea of, of harmonic society as opposed to some of the things that I've I've, I've kind of thought about and wrote about in terms of coherence and coherence mechanisms and how those might diverge in terms of how tightly coupled our experiences are with one another and, and how um, how that might impact um, the way or the dynamics of the whole society and, and whether or not it's a sustainable pattern. And I think maybe maybe we can put a pin in that and, and come back to it in another conversation. I, could, I think it's probably, you know, we could keep going all night. This is, it's a beautiful conversation. And um, I know I've had a wonderful time yeah um it's been it's a hell of a first interview <laughs> yeah. um i think we plan on bringing more to people you know we're going to continue with this pattern and, and bring even more texture emotional texture uh thank you so much for being <laughs> here with us andreas we really appreciate you coming on the show thank you so much yeah. this has been super enjoyable you guys ask really good questions oh, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to hear you say that we're, we're <laughs> trying to hopefully bring a little bit of uh, a little bit more enlightenment and a little bit of signal in this increasingly noisy world, as we say. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, everybody, for, for listening. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, you guys for providing this space. Awesome. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you, everybody. See yeah. you next time. Bye-bye.